and welcome to another episode of Hot Singles. You are joined by me, Alexis, aka Regression. As always, I'm joined by Buchanan. Hi. There's the classic Kai. Hi. And we are joined. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, what's up? We see, we see Boo in, oh. in her natural <laughs> habitat. Making Hi. Her... <laughs> yep. Her, her cry heard across the valleys. <laughs> Hi. Um, th- this is extremely Pokemon vibes. I love this. Um, <laughs> I-, I was gonna say Alexis, Navi who- from Ocarina of Time. I was like, yeah. who's Navi hey, noise? Listen, <laughs> we should have called the podcast. Hey, listen. I mean, that is a good name for a podcast, but also that I is. prefer I, the, the joke of hot singles when neither of us are single or hot. But I'm just, <laughs> is that is um, extremely disrespectful co- to our guest. Alexis, today, who is? Uh, uh, okay, hi, I'm Lily from the Indians <laughs> podcast. Uh, Jackie are... talked my way into this podcast, and here I am. Yep. Hell yeah. That continuing is your little Indie Heads run that's happening. It is, it is continuing. Um, I should say, it's it's hilarious that that was a joke that worked for me in autumn that doesn't even work for the current slate of hosts that we have now. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. Podcasting japes. Um, it's fine. love to see it. But we got a fucking incredible slate of records to talk about this time, which we are really in do. order. It, mm-hmm. it's, uh, they're pretty fucking great. Um, Love Streams by Tim Hecker. Yeah. Um, I I is that the right way to pronounce it? I I is it just I the, come the, I, do I, it? So. I don't know. It's I'll Google it later. Cool. I, I've been um, going with I I. Although like I had never said the name of that record out loud very much until this recording, and I was like, wow, no. it's really hard not to sound like you're making a Death Grips reference. <laughs> Yeah, depending on the velocity it, on so with which many different you say levels, it. it's a horrible thing to to get out your mouth. Yeah, um, it is. I I by Bonnie Bear, and um, Living Torch by Callie Malone. I've been I've been headbanging vociferously through all of those titles. I'm excited. Oh yeah, oh yeah. All right, um, and we're going to start off with uh, one Tim Hecker. Yippee! Uh, cue the music.
So, this is my bit to be like, so who the fuck is Tim Hecker? Tim Hecker is... I'm going to get in on this. I want to get on this context. Both of us just haranguing boo. (laughs) Oh, it's, yeah, hang on. This will be a fun, like, it's, I, it's... I should mention, Alexis, you know me. It's ambient uh, musician Buchanan. I have mm-hmm. never, up until uh, up until for the for the purpose of this podcast, ever listened to any Tim Hecker song, ever. Ooh, wow! So well, that's what was interesting. I was saying, it feels like there. one of Deep, the deeply sacrilegious for like a Canadian ambient artist. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's that's not our guy. It's it's not born. It he is he is our guy, but it's it's not born out of any like hate or di- like disrespect or like he was mean to one of my friends or you know whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just, it's like I it's I see that Tim Hecker has an album out like every two years, and I'm like, all right, cool man, that's sick. All right, I'll catch you later, bro. Like it's I it's I, I it's not even that I've like bounced off him. It's just I just see him and I'm like, okay, that's cool, dude. Take care. Yeah, but I so, mean, take it from someone who got into OPN literally last week. Like, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah! I know where are you coming from? Yeah. So, whereas OPN has been haunting both me and Boo and also this podcast for however many. No years. way. He's yeah. not been haunting me. I'm in love with that man. <laughs> no. Mm. You fool. Uh, he's been haunting us in a cool and sexy yeah, he's, yeah, he's been haunting yes. it. It's a, 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 a Russian ghost preside haunts hot singles. Uh, he's, been, he's been haunting us on the level where you're like, oh, that that button up is like doing so much more than it should be. Yeah. On that uh, kind of level. A, a ghost has got to be dressed well, and he's dressed well. Um, That's true. Alexis, all of, is... this, all of this to say, who the fuck is Tim <laughs> yes, Hacker? Yes. Tim Hecker is a Canadian um, electronic and ambient artist who has had a long career, probably like into its maybe third decade now. Yeah, I think uh, he's like, if you count the Jetone stuff, he's, yeah, in like 25 yeah, years. He starts in like solo, the late wow. 90s. Yeah, first solo album is 2001. So yeah, like been gone, gone for a little while. Progressed through many eras, uh, like I primarily like have listened to and loved the sort of middle period from like 2011 to 2016, 17, which I think is probably where he surfaced most as like, not just one of the leading lights of ambient, but also someone who was taken seriously in like, in inverted commas, avant-garde electronic music. Um, yeah. He's done collabs with OPN. I think the Instrumental Tourist record is, uh, you know, just like very straightforwardly pretty ambient noisy stuff, which is like just right in a sweet spot for like comfortable listening for me. Um, but yeah, like Love Streams has come off the back of two records, Rave Death 1972 and Virgins, which have mainly circled around, okay, obviously ambient textures and like stripping st- sound to the point of destruction, but particularly pianos. Like pianos were like the, the thing that he had been working with and around for a good few years in Rave Death, there's drop pianos, which is just like sketch component pieces following it and Virgins as well, which um, a sort of centerpiece moment is a retooling of the very famous Steve Reich piece, Piano Phase, um, but in a more destroyed form. Yes. And he comes up with Love Streams in 2016, which is not that. It is noisy and decidedly electronic and has a pink purple blue color scheme to it that makes it almost like noxious and luminous in a way that i think entirely suits the music 
and might be one of my favorite electronic records of all time. Might be. Oh, amazing. I'm so glad you're in the pocket for this album in that way. Yeah. Because I remember Love Streams getting kind of like a middling reception coming off the back yeah, of Rape Death yeah. and Virgins. Um, Everyone loved but no, those. I, like... I absolutely think it's one of his best. So I'm, yeah, I'm so happy like, we're in the same camp here. Yeah, there's a there's a, there's a fun thing going on where, um like, so, so t- two things are going in the, in the back of my head. One is that Love Streams feels sort of like a riff on the Jeffrey Lance, uh, Canty Ledesma album, Love is a Stream. Like, I can't help but, like, think that the, the names are in some way, like, tethered together. Like, that's an inevitable thing. I think uh, there's also, def- like, a wink nudge to the Cassavetes movie as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, there is an explicit reference here, but there's also, like, a spiritual reference to other things in the same field doing similar things. The yeah. Ledesma is very much a, like shoegaze noise a way of getting towards ambient music um whereas this is very much coming from electronics but like both of them are like decidedly bright in a way that is like very much in tension with the stuff that hacker was doing before this whereas the other two have like this like i okay i will ask you this naming an album virgins and making it sound like that with all this like grim dark visual stuff like there's there's something like very compelling but like quite unsavory about this record sorry about virgins specifically to my ears i don't know if you agree with that lily um in a sense i see what you're saying i mean virgins is like i think that is like the best electronic album of the 2010s personally like i have nothing but great things to say about that record as in Um, like it's incredible but in a in a way that's like to me slightly stomach cuddling like it's oh yeah it it, it is very much on purpose like wretchedly difficult to listen to especially as mm -hmm. the social climate has kind of evolved since it came out and i think yeah he's very deliberately playing i wrote a whole piece about virgins uh last year incidentally where like I, i kind of went into the fact that yeah he's playing not only on this notion of like like when you hear the word virgins you're thinking about primarily for what he's doing musically like these live instruments essentially being like ravaged by his own electronic processing. But like, I think the implications of that title run a lot deeper. And I know that like, I I have a feeling that that album is very much deliberately in dialogue with these notions he had around this time about like the surveillance state and these sort of political structures that are, you know, metamorphizing over the course of the 21st century. Like that album's cover is an Abu Ghraib reference. There's a direct Abu Ghraib reference, like in one of the song titles, there's this political subtext that is sort of like clawing at the edges of that record, but in a very diffuse way. And yeah, I think absolutely like that is what makes it such a like singularly upsetting record because you hear what is being done to these live instruments and like, you understand on some level the way that he is trying to reflect like what is not even entirely ongoing in society at that stage, but is about to like really dial itself up a notch uh, immediately yeah. after the release of that record. 100, and like the prescience 100%. of that is is similarly upsetting. Yeah, I, I mean like the 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 like continuity between like Iraq to like modern surveillance state is like fully a continuous line but like mm-hmm. knowing the moment that we needed to like i think about what well, i think about love streams and i often think about anoni's um hopelessness at this in the same moment because mm. they're both 2016 albums oh, i was yeah. thinking about them t- very strongly together and that like both feel incredibly prescient that like climate breakdown and catastrophe and like the mass surveillance state like arrived in like these particular moments very heavily before we even in public consciousness like arrived at the same political moment that like activated those concerns for us and Mm -hmm. they could have been like key primary texts for emotionally processing them in the same way that like you know the like the Brzezinski stuff might get like 
uh, tritely trotted out as like, this is the way of electronic music reflecting back and processing the horrors of 9-11. Like, no, nah, I think these do it in a more politically interesting way and more presciently. But yeah, that's all, all of that's to say, like, we're coming off like an album deeply horrible to listen to, deeply about this like very, uh, I'd say abusive, destructive process of dealing with instruments and come to an album called Love Streams that, yeah, you know, um, is enveloping and warm and cozy, maybe? Um, um, yeah, I think you like, can hear it in a certain way. Uh, that's, yeah, interesting. Because I see this as an extension of the same sort of, like, um, you know, destruction of natural timbers that he's engaging with, like, in Rave Death and in Virgins. Um, but yeah. maybe towards a slightly different end? I, I don't know. We yeah, can talk so about this that is exactly, exactly where I wanted to head with it. Because this is an yeah. album that, like, I love because of its tension between, like, brittleness and destruction at the one end and mm-hmm. like heft and warmth and like the blanket like cover of noise on the other and that's a thing that like he has not been working with in the others um it's something that he's learned to, to work with or decided to, to like approach and i think just like has some of the the coolest sound moments i can remember in the last decade uh, all yeah, the way 100%. through based on this just like like weird magical interplay between like yeah is it destroying it or is it like constructing it and building it and covering you in it totally and that ambiguity is something that like i was reading a bunch of his sort of press stuff around the release of this album and that is something he talked about very directly he's like i'm done with this Mm -hmm. sort of like didactic mode of interpretation like i want to get past that into this sort of like nebulous space where again like depending on the angle in which you look at a piece of music you could draw like two entirely different conclusions from it and like you know neither is right neither is wrong uh uh, alexis i wanted to ask you have you read so an interesting thing about tim hecker is for the listener if they don't know is like he has a phd from concordia which is this famous electroacoustic music school but not in electroacoustic music he was like a poli sci phd uh and his thesis is publicly available online Uh, alexis have you read his thesis not at all but i think i've just pulled it up is it called on the production of loud noise or something i believe so yes so like let me wait for it to load yeah and taking a cursory glance at that like i think that thesis is a bit of a skeleton key to understanding what i view as sort of like uh, essentially his entire 2010s output like rave death through sorry can i just be- before before we just like how fucking great did we line these picks up excuse me oh it's yes. awesome 100 <laughs> percent. i'm just uh, watching yeah, i'm just hearing the... you guys i'm just hearing you guys go and i'm j- i just got a big smile on my face i'm like hell yeah we're, we're playing we're playing tennis <laughs> over here um yeah. if anyone wants to look it up um the phd is called the era of megaphonics on the productivity of loud sound 1880 to 1930 uh, yes, in the introduction of which he refers to his own thesis as a self-absorbed in- exercise in intellectual abstraction. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, buddy, you get it. Oh, yeah. So in very, very broad strokes, what that thesis is about, and he talked about that he sort of wanted to provide an antidote to like the extensive literature that is about there about like noise suppression and noise control and the sort of like classist and fascistic implications of that and he was like i want to look at loud noise as this sort of like 
first in one chapter, like this tool of collective organizing, but then also through that and through this like application of volume, like this means of achieving personal transcendence. And he's kind of looking at like, how can people weaponize loud sound against these systems in order to, you know, achieve some kind of like structural or, you know, inner liberation? And how can they like disrupt broader social structures in the process as well? And I think that like, I was trying to think what is the unifying thing of sort of all of his output from rave death and beyond and i think first of all you do see this like incorporation of live instrumentation like you got the organ in rave death this sort of chamber ensemble in virgins the choir in love streams like etc um Mm -hmm. but also all of those albums are dealing with i think these different modes of disruption essentially like rave death is about temporal disruption he talked about wanting that album to like be like, what would a record sound like if you discovered it in a landfill 10,000 years from now? But yeah. with Virgins, it's like political and like ideological destruction and disruption. And then I think with Love Streams, like he seems really concerned with essentially like the technological ways we interface with each other and like how those can, again, like in a non-dual way, because he said he's like, I don't want this to be my like commentary on autotune album or whatever. Like I, I uh-huh. don't want to be that didactic. Um but yeah, I, I think he's sort of dealing in this case with this like interior disruption of like, how are these changing like intel- technological interfaces that are being born out of the surveillance state, changing the way we communicate both like externally and internally. And then Konio is yeah. obviously dealing with like climate disruption. Yeah. So, I mean, like this is, I'm literally just skimming the introduction to the thesis and like, if I, if I wanted to grab out the, the bits that I think are most important, like, I think you're entirely right. We're talking about like quality destruction. We're talking about qualitative, like transformation rather than like, you know, um, there are many ways to, I, again, I often think about, uh, Daniel Lopatin for this, for like, there are all sorts of ways to sequence music in time. There are all sorts of ways of sequencing music like vertically and stacking it in textural terms. The, uh, where like the the dimension that seemed like disruption was being like managed in some of the previous stuff was temporal. Was about you know the the like stretching of like the sense of how time works in Rave Death, and like I I I think back to the way it's abusing Steve Reich in. Invergence like that still feels like there. That's the dimensionality in which destruction is happening. Love Streams feels like an album that's about a transformation in texture and timbre, and it about a, like a transformation in qualitative sense, even as the like forms are actually fairly consistent. And the, like the, the the term is being thrown around, it's like a transformation in intensity. Um, I'll just literally quote the like I've read a tiny bit of Greg Milner before. Intensity, notes Greg Milner, is what makes our eardrums vibrate. But when those vibrations are translated into electrical impulses in the cochlea and sent to the brain, the magic of psychoacoustics takes over. Intensity is correlated with what happens outside our ears, but loudness exists only inside our heads. So like, this is an album that like, takes sounds and moves them into intensities that they should not occupy and transforms what those intensities are qualitatively. And like, you know, asks what sorts of experiences and loudnesses and sensations they produce. Um, yeah, I, totally. I, I think like the, the the axial shift though is from a temporal one to a, like a a textural and vertical one. Like that's the the like because I'm the sort of listener I am. I grab after texture and timbre so aggressively in my listening. Me too. <laughs> this feels like exactly the right Tim Hecker album to feel like if the direction of play is in the direction of like texture and timbre this is the Tim Hacker album for me. And I think that's exactly what I like feel. Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, this is his most interesting album on that front in terms of he's really like, there were all these kind of like timbral disruptions happening in other records. Um, mm-hmm. And he was playing around with that a little bit, uh, you know, in some sections of Virgins as well. Uh, but yeah, this is the one where he's really like, I am going to bring that front and center and like, see what I can turn a voice into and see what I can turn an instrument into and like, try to make the two unrecognizable from each other, but then also mm-hmm. like reconstitute them back into these alter versions of themselves. Uh, what do you know about like the sort of process for this record? Have you dug into that much at all? So oddly enough, trying to recreate some of the effects, I started looking into the sort of maxi MSP and Jitter stuff that he uses. I don't know yeah. much of the details of it other than like, I know those are the tools and I know that that's what's going on. But like, I can't say more than like, they sort of seem like a black box from the outside because they are like so incredibly like minutely flexible. Like that's sort of the power of Max and like, I've dabbled in Max a fair bit and know exactly how capacious and strange it can get. Yeah. Yeah. We, one time some like school friends and I like drove down uh, from Edmonton to Calgary to see Tim Hecker. And like, we tried to sneak a look at his Max setup because we'd all taken like a graduate course in Max the term (laughs) before and the security was not having it. Oh no. We were like, do we just like take a peek? We want to see. Cause um, if you've never seen Tim Hecker live, he is strangely for the qualities of his music, like one of the most dynamic live performers in the electronic music space. Like he, is moving and adjusting shit on the fly constantly and like mm-hmm. has clearly developed such a labyrinthine like assembly of max patches over the course of the last 20 years that he can basically just like treat sound like silly putty on the spot uh, and that's very much like what his live shows are about and we were like we gotta see like come on how oh, this is so relevant to cool. our schooling and yeah they want less <laughs> very sad <laughs> no educational purpose is not good enough yeah no it wasn't Uh, but yeah so the process for this record again we talked about the fact that he's sort of working with like other musicians and ensembles and he's incorporating like live instrumentation as sort of the source material for his records more and more up to this point so for this record he ends up working with a choir in Iceland where what he does before he even arrives with the choir is he sort of writes this choral arrangement that is based off um, the music of Josquin de Prez who's like this 15th century renaissance composer uh, mm-hmm. d- writes this big piece that's like this whole riff on Deprez and then feeds it through um, Melodyne and like turns oh, wow. it into MIDI data, sends the MIDI data over to um, Johan Johansson and he's like, do what you want with this. And then Johan Johansson does what he wants with it, sends the MIDI data back over to Tim where he makes all these sort of like prepared scores for this Icelandic choir to work off of. And they have this like massive recording session where essentially him and Ben Frost are giving this choir all kinds of insane direction. Like the one he loves to cite in all the press is he's like, uh, try and sing this one like you are Chewbacca on cough syrup. (laughs) (laughs) There's another um, really incredible quote. Oh, what is it? Uh, I can't find it quick enough. But yeah, the, and so then he takes those messed up recordings and then just like completely fucks with them in Max and probably Pure Data and whatever other software he's using to like yeah. generate the results you end up hearing. And I think it's kind of lovely how the sort of philosophy he's after or the issue he's trying to explore in terms of like translation and communication is sort of written into what the process for this was. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of why it's so almost transparent in a way that a lot of other Tim Hecker albums aren't like maybe it's just because of our own like evolutionary familiarity with the human voice that like, 
you hear a voice being fucked with and you're like, okay, I understand what's going on here on a primal level that like you wouldn't necessarily with more kind of like oblique instrumentation. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's also a really important part of sort of like what the thesis is too, is like just how he made it was so nuts. And to pull up another um, bit of writing, I, I think like what his stated intentions in the press were for this are also incredibly amusing. Do either of you remember the press release for this album? Absolutely not. not. Um, so it's one of my favorite, it contains one of my favorite phrases ever in a press release. Um, so this is just the tail end. Uh, the effect is similar to hearing some ancient strain of sacred music corrupted by encryption. Again, it's like that obvious. Uh, Mm -hmm. and then Hecker admits to thinking about ideas like quote, liturgical aesthetics post Jesus. (laughs) Yes. Fuck. Yes. Transcendental voice in the age of autotune, end quote, during its rotation. Liturgical aesthetics post-Yeezus is like, it, find me 10 finer syllables that anyone has ever included in a press release. No, that's, that's it's so perfect. good. It's literally perfect. I was it actually is. talking with a friend who runs a small label in Bristol here, who said um, they got a message back from a, from a journalist who said, I love the song you've sent me, but the press release is pants. What's all this stuff about, like, subjectivity that you put in here? Like... I don't know what that is. I can't write about that. Um, right. And I'll do you a favor and I'll write about the song. And then the, pre- the, the, the article came out and like the last paragraph was exclusively about the wank in the press release. <laughs> but I want to live in the world where people are writing uh, liturgical aesthetics post-Jesus in all their press releases, even if it's not relevant whatsoever. Um, I think you need to crowbar those four words into your press release in some order. Yes, it just has completely. Does anyone want to know what I thought of Love Streams by Tim Hecker? Yeah, yeah, let's talk about the music. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this this is the one thing I have in my notes. By your dream is that my lover. She's just a girl (laughs) who claims that I am the one. But the kid is not my son. If I can actually add a twisted contextual layer to that, the the Baiji Dream title comes from um, this like incident in China where a choir um, who had Baiji in the name somehow, uh, I'm forgetting the exact context. Um, oh yeah, so that was the city in China. It was this incident where like a military choir was giving a performance and then the floor just completely caved in and they all yep. fell through the floor like mid choral performance. Uh, <laughs> I'm picturing I'm literally uh, looking at dream right now. to the tune of Billie Jean right over that. Um let me just drop this in the chat. This is kinda wild. I hate to it's uh this happened literally almost ten years ago. But it, it bums me out that it's I whenever I see the people who are injured, I'm like, oh no. Yeah, I know. I, I kind of uh, don't like that either. The, I just I want everybody to be okay. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm Although sorry the eight people. Sort of I know. I'm sorry to the eight people who were injured in this uh this uh this installation. Uh, yes. To be clear, I don't think there was any like major <laughs> injuries that happened. No, like, it's no it's like every everybody just kind of like hurt themselves slightly because it's they're only like a couple feet off the ground. But I'm sorry, I did my funny Billy Jean joke about your incident. <laughs> In the name of the Father, the Holy Spirit, Amen. Who's <laughs> <laughs> absolved? Uh, 
Uh, I it's as as I mentioned at the at the start of this, I had not listened to any Tim Hecker album before this. It's not out of like a lack of interest or lack of malice. It's just like, oh, okay, cool. Like it's I it's I just had not gotten around to him. Uh, and if this is like what uh like the papers like called like like treat as the runt of the litter. I I am excited for other stuff. Uh oh, yeah. under his belt. Oh, I really yeah. I really did enjoy this. Uh I mean like Baiji Dream is phenomenal. You guys were talking about texture and stuff earlier. I think that song has a beautiful like it's it's it busts in the, mid, the, the midpoint. It just like moves instruments in it. The the and, the cheat code yeah. the cheat code for me like liking your song is like synths and like midis being fed through granular synthesis mm, it's yeah. it, it is that easy for me to like somebody's song and uh yes. this like it's it was just beautiful i also i also really liked live leak instrumental i think that's an awesome name for a song uh but it's just it's cool like it's just cool <laughs> i'm sorry it's i don't i don't have any larger uh, I mean, at some point, I'm also entirely reduced to <laughs> sounds and like, <laughs> yeah. That's what's so nice about this one is that, like, and what's nice about Tim Hacker in general is that, like, you can be so heady about him, and he lets you be heady about him. But like, you can also enjoy all of his albums on a like, haha, sounds sounds feel nice in my ear level. Yep. Tim Hacker <laughs> appreciates how I am listening to this. Smile. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, like, in terms of one thing, like, you're entirely right we can do this just like abstract appreciation thing. I think it's very important for this album specifically for there to be like incredibly fluid motion in the songwriting. Like mm -hmm. we, you yes, pointed absolutely. to some like Castrati stack, which is like probably the most obvious point where you get like, you can hear the like formal renaissance. It's is, uh, just going to praise like Huda renaissance. Uh, yeah. I don't, like late medieval, I don't know the details, but yeah, like I I can't pitch my classical uh, choral composers perfectly in time, but like you can hear there's something very formal about the harmony going on there, and it like rolls that over for like full four minutes, mm -hmm. um, plays with it, shoes through it, but again without ever like this is not an album for motifs in the same way that others might be. Like if you are doing this like recombination of like input material system thing. You could have a record that like starts with like inputs and they get like transformed and then you like notice how that they get returned. This album's incredibly good at like diffusing its source material or not making its hand so obvious about the fact that it like had something that it transformed, which gives it this like wonderful quality of just like pushing and adventuring further onwards constantly, which I just really appreciate because it like both does allow you to um, like, you know, invest in trying to track this incredibly difficult and slippery process of figuring out how something shifted into something else how the like the the like midi data of a, a chorale turned into you know shattered electronic textures that sound like you know a radio in you know I'm tr i was trying to think of something that a, a wacky place a radio might be but i didn't quite get that um <laughs> A, a radio in an alien's butthole. That's the best I can come up with. Um, 
or you can just follow its flow. Or you can just like literally just like see that it's going to go on trajectories that like do not roll back on themselves constantly. And it's better off for it. So yeah, I um, immensely love the way that it like structures its tracks. Without, yeah, the fact that people were yeah. were kind of complaining about like the structuring and the sequencing of this album when it first came out was like really Babies. baffling to me. Because I think this Babies. is like it completely, this is probably his most, I would say like, astutely like sweet like record in terms of its exactly, sequencing yeah. like harmony and ultraviolet kind of gets there too but the ebb and flow of this record and the way the songs like diffuse into each other completely imperceptibly and the sort of like large scale contour to it i think is probably like more successful than it is on any other tim hacker album where you're mm-hmm. either dealing with these very like sort of discrete like contained suites or a completely you know disjointed track list on purpose and this sort of hits like right in the sweet spot where like you can listen to each of these albums like and enjoy them individually or you can listen to them like the whole way through and completely get lost in where you are in the track listing yeah oh, and I, I am literally just like pulling up up, up uh, Red Bull Creek right now and just sinking the fuck into it yeah, it's, it's such, it's so plushy. Yeah, uh, BJ Dream and Up Red Bull Creek are just like kind of impossible to like match for me. Just like this whole album is perfect. I think it's, I think this is a 10 for me personally, but like those two tracks, I can never fail to be like genuinely slightly astounded by the sound of. So, yeah. That's- very interesting because i always like as much as i do think this album is consistent always kind of regard those as like interludes a little bit like i um, i'm oh, i'm I sitting over here <laughs> i think a hallmark of the hot, uh, hot singles podcast album listening habit is the interludes are always the best track that's a rule of thumb interlude the gang okay, live by okay. and abide by yeah okay Sorry, um, sorry to break protocol, but yeah. No, 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 no. no I'm no, so that's cool. That, no, that's Violet that's Monumental. cool. That's cool. We're just gonna edit you out of the episode. That's fine. No, that's just cool though. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. cool. Okay, wonderful. Uh, I'm your so lines happy get I blew my show. Go- <laughs> We're going to get a text to speech to reread like reread all of your lines and fill in all of that other information, <laughs> and maybe credit an AI. I don't know. Who knows? We'll figure it out. Uh, um, after having to be a literal member of the Indie Heads podcast, it, it does feel like such poetic <laughs> justice to like walk into an episode and be confronted with a bit I do not understand, <laughs> and have to like find my footing in it. I so love. This is I, just, I love genuinely the. <laughs> Sorry, it's I. I just love the kind of phrases like as a, as having to be a member of the Indie Heads podcast. <laughs> like it's it is a it is like a beautiful An burden obligation and placed yeah. upon somebody. <laughs> love you guys. But yeah, so it actually gives me a perfect opportunity to like bounce off other artists doing not identical things, but like two other artists who have like peak peak. Um, the the best track is the interlude tracks. One is Holly Hunden and the track specifically Fear and Santi Doubt of mm. So Holly Hunden is absolutely one of the other artists I think about when I think in the abstract sense about like who does interesting things with voices in electronic music. Like she's obviously a go-to. Um, the thing that is going on here is like of voices being like dynamically pitched to multiple um uh, multiple of the notes within a chord in a way that makes it sound like a pseudo-random arpeggiation and that that like tracks up and down as she sings what sounds like the original performance was a single lead line 
um, but that it's harmonized in this incredibly sparse, quite dramatic way. And I think it's possibly my favorite track on this album. It might be a, like my favorite like singular experiment that she did with in this like era of experimenting. It's also an opportunity to like go for another artist who is like conceptually interested in the like. Uh, uh, <clears throat> in what ways does this and doesn't this match? Um, the track I'm thinking of is BMW Xuanhuan X5 by Lee Gamble. Um, it is a very sparse track uh, of the first EP in the sort of series of the like EPs that built up to a larger project that he made. Um, it's repitching exhaust noises from a speeding car and mm. then reharmonizing them. Um, I first heard this live in I think the church in the church in Hackney. Yeah, where like you just these long tails and blooms of reverb from what's literally just like that's definitely just a speeding car panning left to right very fast, and then suddenly blooms into ambient signs. Like it's genuinely an uncanny sense and one of my like absolute favorite like pieces of sound design on its own. It feels very fitting that we've got another track here that's an artist like, like th the reason it's called BMW Xuanhuan X5 is because it was like built out of looking at um, fake um, manufacturing of um, European cars in China. <laughs> that like something about the way that cars either that had been imported, but most primarily, I think primarily based on the press release stuff that I remember from the time, stuff that had been manufactured there and was defective in some way or had been changed for the local market or was just a complete and utter like fake version um wasn't quite right and was slightly uncanny and that this was somehow like sensuously related to it um like those are two tracks that are absolutely like interlude tracks that i think spell out what the project is doing in the in its best and most condensed forms so just like going back to first of all the holly Hunter, like I come back to Holly Hunt and it almost feels a bit on the nose. <laughs> it almost feels a bit, like, not obvious. It's not obvious. And it's also incredibly technically impressive. But, like, something about the... I want to be really careful what I say because I love this project as well. But, like, the it's so determinate. It's so very clear how the effect and the production process relate to each other where the sort of beauty for the Tim Hecker for me is that like it's present but in such a distant and alienated sense from the actual sensuous experience of the thing that it's very very hard to interrogate it unless you like spend a lot of time and a lot of effort like the like BG Dream is an interlude track but it's not an interlude track where as are the others like the, the trick the bit is on the surface it's an interlude track that just happens to be like one of the quieter, more interstitial bits between larger set pieces. So yeah, um, just like little polls that I've always been using to like think Tim Hecker against. And like why I think this album as, a, as an album works even better than both Proto and the, um, uh, was it Real Flush Larynx? Is that the name of the Lee Gamble larger project? Flush Real la Pharynx. Not Larynx, Pharynx. There you go. But yeah, um, this album's exceptional. Those are merely great. That's this is like part of what like gives it the special source for me. Yeah, and it's it's funny. It took me until speaking of uh, BG Dream, like 
it took me until listening to it a bunch for this podcast to realize that I think it's like an omnichord or something is what's listed in the credit. But that instrument that's used in um, BG Dream, like that whole riff comes back on voice crack. Yes, Which I had absolutely. just never, somehow never noticed despite having listened to this album like probably a hundred times or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I can play that that like thematic bit in my head. And, and again, yeah, like the <laughs> the um, like I said earlier, like this isn't an album that like dwells on its thematic form. It's true, it definitely has like through lines, and you can get bits up. Like I think it's very important that so much of the tracks are literally in key with each other. Like they flow into mm. each other harmonically as well. But that right. like what the what is important most particularly is the fact that like it's not a statement that BG Dream like capitulates a thing and voice crack recapitulates it. You could miss that. You could, as you have done, listen to this album dozens of times without ever actually realizing they're the same like sonic material. But they're reused in a in in a way that like adds to the like contextual continuity, but also like evolution and like examination of difference between the bits of the record, yeah. Yeah. Well I think what we're also getting at that's gonna come up later is just the fact that like unlike some of the more obvious metaphors you could go for sonically when you're dealing with this kind of subject matter. Like this album and Tim Hecker's Uber in general just like is not prescriptive. No. Um, in its interpretation, which I think is just is such a simple thing that like makes all the difference in how a piece of music connects with you, especially if it's a piece of music that is like fundamentally like heavy air quotes political or like just dealing in some form of like esoteric social commentary. Like you said, the fact that it's not ever really showing its hand on that is part of what I think allows it to succeed in, again, taking this very obvious musical metaphor and just stretching it out to these unrecognizable extremes. Yeah. And I mean, like, this is part of the thing where, like, going deep back into the Hot Singles Annals, one of the first episodes we did where we, like, broke this, I brought the last Caterina Barbieri full-length album, which was mm-hmm. Static Computation. Um, mm-hmm. Is that the name? I always, I always threaten to call it ecstatic composition, and it's not that; it's computation. Um, and I brought it on to Autumn, who is not a listener to either ambient music or like electronic music in general, particularly, but specifically mm-hmm. had really like dealt with a full length al- uh, um, ambient album before. And I chose it because it's only thirty six minutes, and like would not be like overly hard going because it like does have through lines and does have like directionality to it, but like. <laughs> very much got a like how the fuck do you listen to this album um and i think it's genuinely important like clearly the three of us are just conversing in like dealing with albums that have fully indeterminate structures um and that indeterminacy is like crucial to both its effect but also crucial to like the like the, the sense and the character of listening to the thing itself um like training yourself to like enter into the listening practice of that of that kind is like a really crucial thing that i think albums like this taught me um and yeah like i treasure it for that absolutely that like the the skill to allow you to like find thematic content thematic not in the musical sense but thematic in the like again political narrative sense out of stuff that is fully indeterminate is like genuinely really special and i yeah i think this album fucking nails it yeah, totally. And I think you raise a good point. Like, this is often 
the Tim Hecker album I will recommend to people first, even though it's like ostensibly one of his less praised because of, yeah, like the way that superstructure is operating and like a fun angle that I always try and like hook people with is the fact that like in a completely like roundabout way, this is like his club album. Like unlike any <laughs> yeah. other Tim Hecker yep. album, like this has beats. It has these like four, four pulses. It has that steady anchor as opposed to like, if you listen to virgins first, you're just going to be plunked into this world of like complete abstraction. Like even if you don't grasp any of the other stuff, like if nothing else, listening to something like violent monumental, you're like, okay, well, th this is a beat kind of. So I have that to like use as this sort of touchstone while I'm trying to navigate like all this other sonic stuff that's being thrown at me. And I mean, like, I keep suckling it because I think it is, like, one of the most singularly monumental pieces of music that I can think about, both in Tim Hecker's discography, but also, like, of the genre of this era. Live Room Into Live Room Out is, like, yes. specifically a disavowal of that kind of structure. Like, yes. it is taking a piece and taking a motif that was about exploring that kind of structuring in its most, like, primitive and, like, pri uh, like primary form and destroying it and wrecking it. Um, and like, as someone who knew, yeah, I knew the Steve Reich piece before I listened to Virgins, the um, recognizing that that was the thing was that was going on was a keystone to understanding what the project was doing. But at the same time, like very much like is a project of a process of like active, like disavowal of the, the hooks that would normally be like enticing you and would like, organize your listening around which other kinds of experimenting in the Steve Wright case, the actual phasing as a, as a musical feature. Um, boo, I just realized like, I've just been talking as if like it was common knowledge, what the Steve Wright piece was and what it sounded like. Do you know Steve Wright's piano phase? No. Let me pull it up. <laughs> um, yeah. Good idea. Good fucking idea. Um, Oh, that's not the right uh, This is a good... I have a feeling later in the episode, you and I are going to be throwing around a lot of classical music stuff that we're going to have to just open <laughs> check ourselves on here. contextualizing. Mm -hmm. Steve Reich's Spotify profile picture is so funny. It looks like he's, like, <laughs> advertising Ford trucks. But he's not. He's fucking... Hold on, let me see out. this. Like, it's just got, like, the 2008, uh, like, movie grime to it, kind of. It's very beige, sepia. It it's is. It's cool. That's very funny. <sighs> so, yeah, is Steve Reckon artist you know much about Boo? Or, oh, it's uh, it's, I've listened about. to some of his stuff, but, again, it's he's not a guy that I've really researched too much i do i I yeah. have, i've liked everything i've heard to be clear cool. um like steve reich was absolutely a cornerstone of like getting me into modern and contemporary classical stuff because uh weird like i can do the full backstory um i for a very long time was in a children's choir and john parsons choir which did like working gigs around london um and one of the gigs we got hired for at a certain point in time was a concert series at the Barbican Centre, one of the big concert, concert venues in London, in celebration of Steve Reich's work and sort of impact on contemporary music after him. Um, who was there? Uh, Owen Pallet, while he was still Final Fantasy, was there. Um, Niels Fromm was there. I think Max Richter was there. 
again, like quite, this is a long time ago, like a full decade plus ago. So like quite different context for them as artists in particular. But yeah, like I got to be on the same stage as Steve Reich. I got to be in things that he composed newly and direct, like was directing and um, conducting. The thing that we were on stage for, I do not remember the original artist whatsoever, but like what happened was I, age 13 or however old, was starting to have my voice break and couldn't sing the alto parts anymore. <laughs> so I just got like sort of, oh, I guess it doesn't really work. I'll go sit in the audience and support rather than like, you know, sing on stage, which is, you know, kind of sad because you like performing. But like instead what I got was in my, still my favorite Steve Rick, um piece, uh, which is double sextet played where it's usually a, a sextet and a recording of a, of a sextet being used as an accompaniment. It was actually two live ensembles playing, which is not the way it's intended, but worked fantastically well. It was Cronus Quartet and Eight Blackbird, who are like two of the like big, big chamber and classical ensembles that do a lot of Steve Reich recording, modern contemporary classical recording. Yeah, wow, um, that's a wild concert to be at. Yeah, like it's it, like that is the centerpiece of the at the end of the night, like just incredible. Um, but yeah, like that gave me like an incredible love and an in to Steve Reich as an artist and a composer. Um, and I basically loved everything he's done and gone to a bunch of like the new and premier stuff that he's worked on. Uh, Piano Face is like from relatively early on in his career where he had gone from, he in like strong reaction against the like serialism and formal modernist stuff that he was being taught in composition classes. He was like, right, I gotta go strip this back to basics and just like take the minimal subject matter and take the minimal amount of input material and do simple like sequential processing to it. So like obviously inspired in some way by the like sequence and process music of serialism and things like that, but in a much less um, deliberately obtuse and a much more like transparently about the subject matter way. Um, which So we, what he started off with field recordings of elements of speech like recorded bits from radio recorded bits from um like public speaking um one of the most famous is it's gonna rain uh which is is it's gonna rain uh no come out to show is like you is another one of these things that ends up on mad villainy which is i think a way that <laughs> it, this is a vector that i know a number of people i know have got in into steve Reich was hearing the uh, open the bruised bladder, come out to show them, uh, and let the some of the sorry, open the. Oh, <sighs> I had to open the bruise up and let some of the bruised blood come out to show them, come out to show them, come out to show them. That as the intro to a mad villainy track has been the in point to see right for so many people I know, which is kind of funny. But yeah, like it makes a lot of sense. Can <laughs> I? It's so good. Can I yeah. be a dilettante in the other direction? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's I just think about it's I'm, I've I've listened to like seven minutes of piano phase and I keep thinking about how sick this would be as a guitar hero chart. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I'm literally oh, with looking at the two controllers, too. Alexis, have or, you seen that video of the guy who did uh, piano phase himself? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Same yes, thing, but with guitar God. hero controllers. Oh, my God. Uh, Double neck guitar shots. hero controller. Fuck. Um, Sorry to Mr. Reich for saying this over your beautiful song. No, no, oh, no, no, no. So no. This is for there the is indeed a clapping music chart, but that's the only Steve Reich chart on chorus, which is sad. 
Wow. Um, oh, I might need to rectify this at some point in time. <laughs> but how I would how I would do an ever slightly changing tempo is like slightly beyond me. But I'll I'll think about that later. <laughs> you would have um, to do some like real hard math. Talk about something you'd need to build a max patch for. So hmm. so to be clear, I did. Uh, let me see if I can pull this up. I've still probably got this on YouTube. Um, I did some charts for Clone Hero a little while ago. Including, I think the pièce de résistance was. Um, Wait, hey God, I'm just now finding out about this. Alexis, this yeah, is no, awesome. I, uh, this is one of the faves. Holy um, fuck! Um, some of these. Oh, I did face shopping because. Um, okay, <laughs> I guess this is the. Put the incidental music on right now. We're talking about Clone Hero. Um, Asai, probably the biggest, you know, Clone Hero YouTuber, Twitch streamer, did um, Pony Boy on stream and got the usual cuddling face reactions. So I did face shopping, also submitted it, got some more cuddling face reactions. But he said my chart was good. So there you go. Oh um, my god! I, Alex, I had no idea about this side of you. This is awesome. Do you want to come over and play Guitar Hero later? I don't. I yeah, love rules. I'm, I'm crap at it, but yeah, you know. Um, uh, there's a loose cold <laughs> shot here because the Dennis Ham piano solo was incredible. One shot I want to show you is by far and away the best because it's by far and away the most complex, but I think it didn't get allowed onto YouTube because of copyright strikes. But I'm going to see whether I can pull it up from my Google Drive. One second. Gonna do oh some. Oh my god, lucky. this chart is fucking sick! So this, this is the is thing. So I, sort of, I sort of figured out that like charting jazz is really hard because often it's not done to click. And actually making sense of how to like phrase progressions and runs and figures is like not something that like is gonna be equivalent, but I have some jazz knowledge and I know how you do this on piano. So like maybe I can like do some an an analogical stuff and like, yeah, I, I'm really fond of these charts. Um, but to be clear, um, like with, the, with things like the John Coltrane chart, that is changing tempo literally every single bar so that I can line the beat markers up with the actual beat. Yeah, oh my God. Wow. This is uh, so cool. This is, oh my uh, god! I'm glad you're freaking out because I don't even think this is the most impressive one. Um, uh, Alexis, but... it's you are already like a really cool person in my eyes. This is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a wonderful revelation. Uh, let me see, do I have to pull it up on Clone Hero itself? Because in which case I am just fucking screenshotting this now. <laughs> do, do not, we have to talk about, <laughs> we have to talk about other albums. Yeah, we've no! been talking about not Tim Hecker for like 20 minutes. <laughs> That's fine. It's fine. Uh, can I fucking... I don't even have a controller with do me, not, so I don't do even have to fucking <laughs> control pull up, Clone pull Hero. Pull up! Pull up! 
I'm pulling up. I'm I pulling just say, up. I came on here with zero intention of beating Jackie's length records. This, this, you just did this to yourselves. Yeah, we're, we're playing this ourselves. This just happens here. when indie heads people go elsewhere. It's true. Yeah. It's, tr- it's, it's a oh, good energy right now. I don't even know how right to fucking now. close it. I don't even know how to fucking close oh, it. Smooth move, Alexis. You're trying to G-check uh, us by showing your clone hero cred. You fucked everything <laughs> up. I know. Smooth um, moves. So, I, mm, yeah, I've, you... literally, I've literally force quitting Guitar Hero, uh, Clone Hero, so I don't end up literally trapped on it indefinitely. Indefinitely, Jesus. Um, bye. Go away. Uh, <laughs> Love Steve Reich is a good. Uh, Steve, Steve Reich. Finishing oh, yeah. off the so bit, we're still fin- talking. This is the Virgin sidebar in the Love Streams talk. Yeah, exactly. Um, Steve Reich, the earliest thing he did was take recorded material, put him on two tape decks, make one very slightly faster than the other, so that like they would play simultaneously, and then because one is faster, it would be slightly shorter, it would start again sooner, and it would like slowly drift in and out of phase. Um, if it loops all the way back so that it is done one whole entire cycle less than the thing it is than the the slower version then it would be back in phase and like you get these like wonderful shifting patterns if you say in the case of piano phase use these like um uh arpeggiated patterns where it's going to be out of phase but then uh it's going to be in phase and then drift out of phase so then not even on the same beat and then drift into phase but be arpeggiating in a different way and form different implicit harmony and it's great it's great uh yeah, Facing and, and Reich a... chose those structures very, very carefully so as yeah, to... Yeah, exactly. There's a particular... I had to do a music theory assignment on piano phase once. The mm. like numerological structures of that piece are very, very interesting when you actually like look at the pitch values on a grid. Yeah. Definitely not a thing that's going to come up later in this episode. <laughs> I'm excited about this. Da, da, four, five, one, two, three, five, four... Oh, I should. God damn it! No, it's gonna be back at my parents' house across the country. I was like, should pull up what my old uh, piano phase homework was. It's very funny that you're talking about this being your gateway into classical music because I had actually not listened to any Steve Reich until I got to that like third year theory class, a full three or four years after I had first heard Live Room. <laughs> oh, amazing! Oh, amazing! It's incredible. I mean, a wild discovery to make in reverse. But yeah. Yeah, not that I, I, like, discovered Reich necessarily. Like, I was aware of him, but that was, like, the moment that forced the deep dive, and I just never made the... Because I have a really crappy ear, um, which is why I'm a failed music student. (laughs) I did not put two and two together on those motifs. But, yeah, pitch values are all one, two, three, four, five in minor. Like, all one, two, three, four, five. It's incredibly, incredibly consonant, and that... And, like, tonally ambiguous, which is going to mean it's super easy for it to, like, form new internal relations every time it comes in and out of phase. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was the Steve Reich's uh, sidebar. That was the piano face sidebar. We're back on Tim Hecker. Do we have any summative thoughts before we fuck off and talk about a different record? I just want to vamp about Castrati Stack for a minute. That's one of my favorite songs of all time. That Do it. song is so incredible it's sick. and so like moving to me. Um, th- yeah, I don't think I have anything more to say about it. Like, with. Yeah, because a lot of my relationship to that song is very vulnerable coming across a song called that that does that in like very, yep. very early transition. Yep, 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 yep. Um, big feelings, but yeah, big that's same a feelings. Fucking incredible track, and I just wanted to single that out as like for me the easy highlight of this record. Like, yeah. Probably my favorite Tim Hecker song next to Live Room and Live Room Out. Um, that song fucking owns. Yeah, I mean, I said my, I said my, my like, 
picks were Vigi Dream and Rebel Creek. But like, because Strategy Stack is a, is a fucking centerpiece for a reason. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, I will give a shout out to a friend of mine and I guess the podcast? Maybe you could say the podcast. Um, uh, Izzy uh, slash Dear Laika, who makes incredible music of her own. Yep. Um, uh, the track I want to direct people for to just because I can is Phlebotomy, which is another incredible track taking and abusing a buck chorale in this case don't tell the label i think it's probably out of copyright but who knows i don't want to you know dover in um and reharmonizing it in again incredibly beautiful incredibly vulnerable kind of brutal way with beautiful sound design this was absolutely a track i was thinking about when thinking about what well, that made me reach back to this album in a very, very positive way. I think that the phlebotomy and tracks like Castrati Stack are very much in dialogue. And if I can tell more people to listen to Dear Laika, even though I've told everyone I know to listen to Dear Laika, the better. Um, I still, I, I've been aware for some time now, I, I gotta get on it, but that's definitely pressing me to do so. Cool. Also for summative thoughts, should we maybe combine summary with a bit of cover watch here? Yeah, let's just head into cover watch. It's, it's cover watch time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, originally, it's at at the start of recording this. I did not mm -hmm. super like this cover. Um, yeah. it's I, Have you I don't figured know out what it is. Here's yeah, it's it is it's the Baiji <laughs> uh, choir incident. Yeah. Uh, you could yeah, see like yeah. you could see like the lapels on their uniforms through the Photoshop like surface blur screenshot of the of the of the incident uh yeah i'm, I'm not gonna I lie did not realize until researching mm. for this episode i i always <laughs> thought it was just like a photo they had taken while they were recording those choral parts yeah uh, nope. i like never dug into it any further and like i am somewhat reevaluating my relationship with that cover in light of that bit of context i'm like hmm don't entirely know how i feel about that choice but okay tim <laughs> It's, yeah, I mean, I, at some basic level, structurally, it is also three bands of, like, luminous, like, bright, like, cool light. In which case, I still think, like, structurally and texturally, it does the thing that I needed, which was, like, blow up all my expectations for the, like, grimdark, like, menace that was coming out of Virgins. Like, it's yeah, very totally. important this cover looks like it does. I, yes. I, it's, I do have to say it's, I still don't think I like the colors on it. I just don't like this palette, uh, on digital, I think like it's, I'm looking at like actual screen caps of it and the, the pink obviously like moving into like CMYK gets like washed out to like a weird, like peachy red. Yeah. Which I like, it's, it's, I, I can't speak on like the, the actual like interpretation of like the form of the cover, but it's, it's just. This this feels like a very band camp album cover. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, I mean, I, yeah, I I've effectively do. been doing this for my own releases, which is like taking a meaningful picture and then using paint.net effects to fuck it up in a way that I uh, think Which is, there's there is nothing yeah. wrong with that. I want to if if you if you are a like listening if if you if you are listening to this podcast and you like make music and you you think your album art is dog shit, good. I like bad album art. It's I it's I like something extremely um indicative of where your head at is with regards to um like juxtaposing a visual with your music. And if it ends up like looking kind of amateur or bad, I think that's cool. I think that's fucking sick. It's yeah. but it's I also look at like Tim Hecker's other album art, which I am just deeply, deeply in love with. Yeah. Uh, uh, which which uh, one? Or uh, anything the, in specific there? 
the uh the the square globe one <laughs> is really fucking sick uh i forget Anoia, what it's yeah. called uh, Anoia, oh, yeah. yeah uh i think that shit is so cool that that is like the coolest thing i've ever seen it's got like a beautiful sense of scale balance and color uh but it, but it is also just like a meaningful picture uh taken and then just like used like i think that's just like a picture of like an installation or something right but um it's cool the the, the dialogue between virgins and Kanoya is one i just want to like reference just the like the visual mm-hmm. symmetry between the two is like has always struck me like that like effectively like mid-distance photographs like very clearly staged but with like the central object of attention effectively like very obviously being this like figured rumble uh like rhombus in the middle in virgins and like a one that's like effectively reconstructed in the same proportions in Kanoyo out of other objects like it has always felt very important to me that those album artworks are like speaking at each other but in like obviously incredibly texturally different ways Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and those albums are very much in dialogue with each other. Yep. I do also actually go. want to flag. Strangely, the Virgin's uh, cover is not staged. He was like in a church in Italy and just came across this statue that was being like restored or whatever, and had that covering over it and like took the picture before Holy he even started shit. making the album. I mean, I think staged. Well, it's an awesome like, fucking picture. It's an incredible yeah. photo, but I mean, staged in the very literal sense of like it is visually arranged to evoke a stage. <laughs> I mean, oh, oh yes yes that's but yeah no, like yeah he did, that it didn't require a fucking photo shoot to get this like sense of stagedness incredible yeah right um incredible. it's funny boo you single out the uh colors on the love streams cover because that is like my favorite part about it i i think divorced even from like its context as an album cover this is like one of my single favorite images of all time wow, just all because right. of the colors like whatever like frequency they admit strikes this chord in me where like i am so both like activated and soothed when i engage with these colors uh, like now wait hang this on. feels like the color scheme i see like on the inside of my eyelids or whatever oh like, through whatever sort of, yeah. of like organic alignment like i i love this color palette so so much and i that think that is so awesome yeah, the way the like the blue violet hues feed into the white oh god I, yeah i love everything about it like <laughs> not to be like a complete woo-woo dork but like my instinct has always been that if you were to take like a fucking aura picture of me the colors would like come out looking like this album the corinian lily photo i like it yes Hell yeah that no, is sick I, no it's it's I'm, different strokes for different folks it's yeah. it's a cool cover uh, <laughs> I might simply have to cut this because, you know, early on in friendships and all, but like, this is also just, I'm not going to say just, this is the bisexual color lighting scheme, isn't it? It is. Well, I'm also biphobic, so. (laughs) (laughs) That got us something to do with it. More tension, more tension. This is great. No, (laughs) I I know, I know. Look, love wins. It gets better. (laughs) (laughs) That's Uh, Tim Hecker meant with this album. Love, stri- love streams. Love streams. Hashtag streams love wins. streams. Hashtag love streams. <laughs> Hashtag a burger fell. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> incredible. All right. Um, okay. Let's fucking let's fucking call it and move on to the obviously much yep. shorter conversation about the much simpler and straightforward album that is I I by fucking Bunny Bear. Yes. Yeah. 
So whenever you're ready, boo, take it away. It, <laughs> yeah, this is the boo talks time. It's true. It's in an in an act of uh, fighting against the uh, the 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 post performance artist establishment uh, of hot singles. <laughs> I I have brought I comma I or I I from singer songwriter Justin Vernon and his band Bonnie Vare. Uh, I also it's now th- this is a this is another uh, Buchanan establishes a massive gap in her listening history. It's I um I I listened to For Emma Forever Ago, which is like the the meteoric rise of Justin's fame. And it's I didn't really like it. I mean it's it's not like it's obviously Vernon has a beautiful, beautiful voice, but it's I just it I just bounced off it for whatever inarticulate reason. It, and it's kind of aged out of its impact. Like, absolutely. Especially like, in comp- I get this for 2008, 2009. Yes. Like, fully uh, understood. But So can, can I be honest? Uh, sure. Like, 
I was peak indie kidding in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. And an album like Laura Marling's Alas, I Cannot Swim also came out in 2008. And obviously does not have this like defining, scene defining profile of being uh, like, uh, like opening a corridor in like smart, thinky folk indie. Um, but I fundamentally think the songwriting in an album like Alas, I Cannot Swing is just, Swim is just better, more interesting, and, like, affect me significantly more. And, like, the problem I always had was with Bonnie Vare, like, to do my own, like, listening gap thing was, like, I did not like Forever Ever, uh, Forever Ever Ago. Uh, sorry, that's a horrible combination of syllables to try and say together first. Forever, 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 ago. forever ago. It's, I... I think it's tougher if you're British. <laughs> oh, my God. Isn't everything? Uh, Indeed. <laughs> um... But yeah, like from that point, basically was just like, I'm getting everything I need from Bon Iver, from other artists more interestingly, um, except two things happened. Kanye happened and James Blake happened. And they are yes. like, importantly related to each other. So like, I don't know yes. if that's just like me establishing that I did not care for, uh, for Justin Vernon and his oeuvre, um, but like hand it over to you, just like, what the fuck happened between, you know, 2012 and 2016 to like get us to to, to you know here. I think that's a thing we can talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's There's honestly on record. I can't articulate on it because 20 to a million was my first uh, Vernon album. Uh, so we hear we hear the end product. Yeah, we yeah, it's uh, like it's as your first. It's wow. oh, I it's <laughs> um I, I'm sorry um. But no, uh, no, I'm just like taking that in. That is so opposite to what my listening experience was. I, I basically only know or or like recognize, I think is a better word. Uh, like it's like a conscious effort as the folksy, but like also weird, granular Prismacizer guy. The Prismacizer is the um, uh, <laughs> it's like this vocal layering software that he made to like further test, uh, like auto-tune stuff and it's like obviously he's on like every kanye song from now until the end of time so it's like it's he uh he has to, he's basically like in the studio writing like codas in auto-tune for kanye that just like completely sum the whole song up and like make it way better than in isolation and he he makes the prismacizer that it's it's basically like an auto chorus uh software like it, it'll just like overlay your voice up and down uh, but it's, he was like really so enamored with it that he, he, from what I can tell, it's like he, he built the, he like rebuilt his whole sound in this, um, like this, this much, uh, glitchier, synthier, but also still like based in like warm analog, uh, like instrumentation. It, it feels like a... Uh, and th- it's uh, you can like roll your eyes at this, but it it twenty to a million feels like a like a new language for the kind of folk music that uh, Bon Iver was writing, and it's it's one that I really really latched onto. I think it's a it's it's so cool. I just um, I I like all like the little like tiny like backmasking like little like vocal like like flying around, and but I also like the really warm saxophones presiding over that i love the i love the mechanics of the songs 
I just, I, it's just cool. Like, I just think it's cool. Uh, and then I, I, uh, personally, I think is my, my opinion of I, I is that it is a worse record than 20 to a million, but it is more assured which I think it makes it better in some aspects. If any of that makes any sense. I think it does. I think of. it lines up with, Oh, Oh no, no, no. Yeah. Like saying like, I, I get you. Um, I yeah. think I have a very, like we, we can get into my Bonnie Vare trajectory in a little bit, but it, it's curious to, yeah, I'm, this is good. It's going to be a fun discussion that you're saying. Yeah, that, yeah, I yeah. don't know if I agree in the same way. <laughs> uh, there, I mean, I think I agree qualitatively that like, yes, it is the more assured one because oh. I think it lines up with the sort of like running thesis I have is that like, it, like this is secretly like a, 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 like a white boy soul record from 1984. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, absolutely. Like, like the keystone track for me is you man. Like, which just like, Oh, this really is just, like you hear the piano and like that should it be is the tip off. It's a Bruce Hornsby record. Like it's yeah, it's there's no uh there's it's just it's just Justin on the piano. Like that's but it, it is, is Bruce it Justin Hornsby actually really playing, is. The, is it Justin playing it is. the piano? I, or is it Bruce Hornsby? No, it's it's Bruce Hornsby. Oh, it's Bruce Hornsby. Okay. My bad. Yeah, he talks about that. Yeah, like Bruce Hornsby was just in jamming and then Justin started like improvising over that piano figure essentially. So I think that's a great way to tie into um, where it's like th this being more assured. It's there is definitely more of a communal aspect. This is like a very it's it, this is like a huge first for Justin in that he's not um, very like gazing like inward in his lyrics or something. He's like writing anthemic, soulful songs for the people. Uh, where it's like it's a lot of them are like really resounding and anthemic, um, as opposed to kind of being a little sad about something or like you know like the the <laughs> tiny griefs that one experiences mm -hmm. uh which is it's i i think that's nice <laughs> it's i don't yeah i think it's to this record's great credit that it does turn outward relative to i think like i don't like 22 a million that much and i think part of it is the sort of like solipsism of that record even though mm -hmm. i get where it's coming from and i guess to like dive into my bonnie vare trajectory a little bit like i knew the hits off for emma you know like i knew the big songs but never really paid it too much time and then really got invested in uh when the self-titled came out because i was like a little burgeoning pitchfork hype beast at the time so i was like oh and i'm quite <laughs> glad i gotta listen to it and did really earnestly Shit. fall for that record and did i still really get a 9.5 it did. This was back when they were like 2011, 2012. They're handing out 9.5s like nobody's business. And then Yeezus was the last one. <laughs> wow. It's wild. Um, wow. This album rinsed through me. <laughs> like too many pints of beer. Wow. Oh, that's so funny. I really love that record. Um, and, you know, the, the Bonnie Vare concert I saw right after, it was like 2012, I still think is probably in one of like the best three shows I've ever seen, probably. Like, I thought it was just astounding what he was doing on that record. And so like, flash forward to me in music school or whatever, listening to like a bunch of like really heavy and experimental and out there music, hearing that like, oh, the new Bonnie Vare album is going to be this like totally grungy, distorted thing. I was like, yes, yes, yes. Like, Justin's coming to my town. Like, this is the <laughs> And 
just found myself like completely whelmed by it in a way that I couldn't really identify and like what I've sort of realized in hindsight because when you look into a lot of the process behind that record it's like okay I get it I get what was happening like psychologically and emotionally for him where he gets this like just utterly unbelievable meteoric rise to fame over the course of these two album cycles that leaves him like completely burnt out and jaded and like broken as a person and so like in totally upending his songwriting process and coming from this place of like improvisation instead, a thing that ties over very heavily into I, I like he's just kind of attacking his sound and he, you know, kind of turns it inside out and into like this really like basically trying very self-consciously to make the complete opposite of like the record. Everyone who like had Holocene on a Spotify playlist wants to hear, which is cool. And I respect that on paper, but it fell for me into this trap that we talk about sometimes on Indie Heads of just like, he just like forgot to make the songs good. Like <laughs> that album and II to a lesser degree are so much more about like concept and theory than actual just like good to the core songwriting in the way that the first two albums had. And it, yeah, I was really, I, I went back to that record and I'm like, I still don't like it but I get it a little more. And when I heard II when that came out, I was really sort of like, okay, fuck Bonnie Bear, like whatever. I'm not that interested anymore, <laughs> but sure. And I was compelled, but still not necessarily grabbed in the way that I really, really wanted to be. Coming back to those two albums for that podcast or for this podcast, I realized like, I think in terms of process, you can draw a real or not process but sort of ethos you can draw a real parallel between these two bonnie Vare albums and the two bj burton low albums where like double negative is this really just aggressive like like you said like establishing a new language for what their sound could be and doing that in this really sort of like maximalist fashion where it's like we're gonna put distortion on everything we're gonna put vocal processing on everything like we're just gonna obliterate the shit out of our old sound until it becomes something new and then i think both i i and hey what are kind of more compelling records insofar as they're like okay we've established the new thing now let's like refine that to this whole other point of abstraction and take like these big thick arrangements and almost like turn them into these like pointillistic sort yeah. of figurations uh, so and bj button linking the two right being the like yes yep yeah no and, totally not, i was thinking about this alongside this the, the the low trajectory so hard as well yeah yeah, yeah. I think he's sort of, you know, not that he was the auteur of either of those sets of albums necessarily, but, you know, there's just like an incidental influence that you wonder about. But I think where Low are almost getting like more hermetic in how they're approaching sound, what's super compelling to me more than anything else about this like post self-titled Bon Iver record is like the way he is approaching writing songs did either of you watch when it came out there was like a new york times video talking about the process of making i me no. no oh that is like to me an essential text for understanding this album and like where justin vernon is at currently because i me was written based off like it was based off a field recording he took during an improvisation that he like played with and fucked around with for five years and got about like 30 people to try and put their hands on before it reached its like finalized form and like he's talked about wanting to expand Bon Iver into this sort of like egoless collective thing as a project that like sure he's the you know, impresario to a degree but like he kind of wants to be the tail end of this like enormous system of like instrumentalists and songwriters and mm -hmm. producers and that to me 
is really, really just such an interesting way to like blow up the songwriting process that like the way, you know, the profiles from him around this time talk about it is like, you know, he has these ro- this roving band of people where for a long time songs do not exist as songs. They almost exist just as like Pro Tools folders or something. There's these little like <laughs> palettes that don't necessarily have a form to them and just people keep adding to them and adding to them and trying to reshape them until eventually they coalesce into a thing where it's like, oh yeah, like that's it. That to me is wildly compelling and I just in both 22 a million and I I wish I heard it in the music a little Mm -hmm. more but I do find the music on Mm -hmm. I I more interesting because again it's like it's the hey what to 22 a million's double negative Mm -hmm. it's doing something far more different and compelling in terms of like what if you took a Bonnie Vera arrangement and then almost like made a reduction out of it where you're just getting these like abstracted glimpses of what the original thing was and then putting the song structure over top of that um not all of the songs work uh as songs still despite it but i think i have more of an appreciation for ii on that level that like it's not just like it's broken through the wall of 22 a million and it's like okay now that we figured out the new thing we're really starting to play with it and like i want justin vernon to kind of come back with that album where the songwriting is up to par with you know how engaging his process is to like read about and think about it's not quite there yet i feel like justin vernon is like james cameron making five avatar movies at once now where he's like <laughs> listen it's not gonna work every time but like if we ride this out we can like properly reinvent the wheel eventually and it'll be a good time it'll be a good time with all my fun friends who i've made alongside yeah. this beautiful journey yeah it's exactly there is the friends we made along the way that we go yeah, it's we true it. that's that that's literally true it's i think now that you yeah. lay it out as bonnie Vera, like it's i now that it's i i am like understanding that this is this is a this is bonnie Vera is trying to like completely descent like justin is trying to decentralize himself out of like it's like blowing up in the sphere for like writing very insular it's i don't want to say navel gazy music uh because like there there's a lot of like like deep emotion happening there but it is you know uh it's i do think now that like it's you just like pitched this as like my favorite bon Iver album like it's now now i'm like <laughs> oh hell yeah this is awesome uh and i was always like that but now i'm like oh hell yeah yeah <laughs> it's really really cool but for me more so on paper than in the music like i think this album is most interesting when it is like fully fulfilling that promise of like you said that decentralized songwriting like you know i me jelmore shadia like those songs that are abstracted funhouse mirror versions of like conventional bonnie Vera songs that to me is so cool and really like hits emotionally whereas the songs that are a little bit more like just some more Bonnie Vera songs. I'm like, yeah, well, I've heard better versions of those. Okay, so it's important for me to ask then, what is a Bonnie Vera song at this point in time? Like when you're talking about there is a comfort zone here, um, because That's... I'm not fundamentally familiar with like what the comfort zone is and should be. Okay, when about Bonnie Vera. Bonnie Vera makes That's songs. Really Bonnie Vera makes songs that are like, I stomp in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Hey Ma, as an example, like, I think to me is my least favorite. Like, that's... Yeah. Uh-huh. 
that, mean, that, that, that one is also it is cribbing the most from the sort of like pre-established Bonnie Vare playbook. It's that that one is also my least favorite because it is the it's as Vernon has said in interviews that it is it's like a, a lot of this is uh, is about like in response to the American climate, but th this one is like the most like uh, attempting to be like anti-authority um, or like anti you know like Trump anti-investor and stuff. And I, I think it it's as a protest song, it is bad. And it's mm -hmm. it, you know that's what he says he like kind of wrote it as, and it's kind of bad at that. Like it's yeah. not good. Yeah. I also was so pissed in doing research to discover that Shadia, on its own, like a phonetically gorgeous song title, is a like diluted acronym for shittiest shittiest day in American day history. In American history. The day after Trump what? got elected. Yes. I was furious because I love a lot of the titles on this album so much. I think the titles actually, to delve back, are, are to me a really good reflection of the sort of different approaches going on between this and 22 A Million. Where yes. Like, when the 22 A Million track list came out, I was like, okay, whatever, Mr. Wingdings. Like, <laughs> fucking... I, I can... I'm sorry. Go, go give David Rudnick some money. Like, what are we doing here? I... Uh, Whereas I, I like I think there's I, I, I really feels more. Something... It's it. There's there's more of an, like an attunement to actual like written and expressed language in that, as opposed to it's yes. like, dude, look how many cool uh, key codes, uh, like how many Unicode characters I have. Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. And I think it's playing with that in a really like potent way, where like the song titles on I, I for the most part, as these sort of like abstractions of actual language. I don't know. They feel like. These song titles have like biblically accurate angel energy. Yes. Like, yeah. I don't know what to like make of this, but like the combination of sounds that is forming in my head around this song title is like yes. so evocative in a way that I cannot articulate at all. I I just want to go back to Alexis's like like consternation at the idea of what Shania stands for. It's I love <laughs> I love that every session of Hot Singles that I and or a guest is also on like Alexis has like a huge reckoning about like dumb guy energy uh, <laughs> that you and I Lily are like totally immersed in. we're like yeah fuck yeah this is my guy bro this 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 is my guy for real Alexis is like okay but the semantics of this you realize and we're like shut up shut up shut up it's awesome <laughs> shut up I'd like to think I can go between both. You can't. You what, absolutely what can't. But it's, I just, I love that we're I like, have yeah. tried and my soul, I, I have tried and my soul does not let me. <laughs> no, I just, and that, that is just, uh, that's just something I love. It's yeah, so cool. Yeah, that is very Can I do uh, cover watch for II? Because it's, I think we're all pretty yeah, clear where please. we stand on it. Biblically accurate Bon Iver, I think is a great way to uh, pin this album as we move into like, as we like wrap up our discussion of it and then move on to cover watch. Um, th this is a, uh, it's so the rollout for this album is, uh, is something that I should, uh, should mention as well. It's Hey Ma dropped. And then like, I, I was announced as a record. And then, uh, basically every song, every song, just like the last album has like a visualizer or a music video, but it's, uh, the gang released them like one, like it's like two weeks after they announced the album and like, like two months before the album was supposed to come out 
they just started releasing them every hour on the day. Uh, wow. So it's, it's, yeah, so it's here. I'm going to link some of my favorite ones here. Uh, the, 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 the. Uh, it's all of them are, well, most of them are like based around, uh, here's a, here's IMI. All of them are based around like interpretive dance and like going around like American reservations and stuff. Uh, others are like, uh, uh, like Aaron Anderson and Eric Timothy Carlson, like stunt pieces, like just... Uh, like the gorgeous visual direction for this and 22 a million uh, are so like, it's just so cool. It's I love yeah visually. This is kind of extraordinary. It's uh, which is why I think it's I uh, it's I, I think like as a as a full product, like the visual, like the the visualizers, the music and like the album artwork. I think is something really truly extraordinary and decentralized uh, in accordance with a Bon Iver wants. I just got to this very cute moment in the Faith music video where when Vernon says there is no design that is in Helvetica and then you'll have to decide is in Comic Sans, which I think is just <laughs> that's cool. uh, that's very cheeky, but it's it's that very is. cute. I'm into it. Interesting. Yeah, I'd never seen any of these. No. Oh, these are. I, I think these are like crucial to the to the album. It's this this uh, the the rollout for this. Like, it's whenever we do like hot singles coverage. I always Google to make sure that there are like videos or visualizers. Um. God, the faith one is so good with just like the clouds of shit flying around the two people dancing. There's a. I also wanted to mention that it's there is a in terms of like a a physical landscape. This is definitely in like Wyoming and stuff like it's like the the American West, like very like arid lands that, yeah. that are ignored and untouched. But like, you know, could represent exile travel. Uh, and I think this does. It's the these songs were recorded around the same time as. Uh, Kanye was doing one of his many scrapped albums, Love Everyone, which uh, a lot of these songs are actually for. Mm. Uh, and it's Kanye is like fully all in on like the Wyoming, like soft sci-fi Ridley Scott, uh, earthy science fiction aesthetic. Yeah. Um, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Where it's, I think this is such a, this is such a, like a more heartfelt and beautiful rendition of that compared to like what uh, Justin's friends were doing. Like this, this feels interconnected. This feels in love with people and community. Uh, and Kanye drew green Sharpie on a picture of a mountain on an iPhone. <laughs> he did do that. He did do that. He did. That was the thing he did. So it's, uh, I, I love watching these so much. It's they, yeah, this is my favorite Bon Iver album. It's so sick. Uh, so this is, it's kind of like telling me what I, the version of why I thought I was like really weirdly ambivalent about this album. So like I okay. said, the keystone for me was the, I, I mean it in a, it's an album that contains a lot of ideas I really, really love and an aesthetic package I really appreciate and love. And also just like an experience that I'm just like left like quite confused by and i and that's a like i a personal experience i mean that i'm very confused by because i know intellectually it should be sparking more 
Mm-hmm. And the thing that I think when I said the key song for me is You Man Like, which is the Bruce Hornsby track, which also coincidentally includes um, fucking Moses Sumney. It's just like random sporadic vocalist. Just like Hi, Moses. What's up, bro? The number of high what's up, bro, features on this album is absurd when you look at the credits. Yeah, it's genuinely silly. But yeah, so the thing that I think I realized is that like American West soft sci-fi anti-Trump soft reference um, like the the damp squid protest song and Bruce Hornsby is the like emotional core of the thing like this is fundamentally like Grammy politics core to me sure Mm. this is her her singing the protest song on the Grammy stage being taken as the like symbol of LA's like fight against the power this is like like this like stripping out the genuine radical potentiality of well i'm not i don't even want to say there was a potentiality there like unfortunately for better or worse like the like soft sci-fi american west stuff does not read as like a space for like radicality it does read for a space of like closeness and family and comfort and Mm -hmm. intimacy and like maybe compassion but these are all words that like lib-brained like grammy core voter might look at and say like oh yeah that's a great statement for our present moment when moment has a capital m like i think like the reason i love bruce hornsby himself like i've said this on the podcast before i think um scenes from the south side has the first two tracks look out any window in the valley road which i think are basically perfect they are like impeccable songs like absolutely impeccable these aren't even the the, the the like famous record that has the way it is on it um they are like fully in the like powdery mid late 80s like beautiful blooming aesthetic um like the, the the this feels exactly in the same like aesthetic sensibility um however it has decided not to like massively invest in the radical potentiality of that thing being different or strange or disconnected but sits like says it's right here this is our home this is where we are and isn't it fucked up how you know like you know um people still think miscegenation is a fucking thing this is how abortion politics works in our town like it is so concrete and like doesn't shy away from like deep midwest being like an actual place where people live rather than like a thing that is gestured towards in a way that like means community but never actually needs to be invested in a meaningful way like there's a there's kind of like a bit of a kanye hangover i think in that as well yeah um, no it's for better I think, or worse like it's like, that, that's, that, that oh, might sorry, just be go, grossly uncharitable but yeah it just it might be grossly uncharitable but it is absolutely like the aesthetic touch points that i feel like emanating off this it's like elite lib-brained response to political crisis that feels slightly ineffectual and like that's again not to say that like this way of working is somehow inherently both tied to that aesthetic and tied to that political orientation they're just not not at all and like like i said a bunch of the ideas just fucking rule but yeah it's like i'm i'm trying to parse in real time what has been sticking about it and i think where that's kind of where i land i wanted to say first I think that makes it's sense. you i think you said oh, yeah, yeah it's you said like elite lib brain first of all there is nothing elite about just averted like it's he is operating no. up like <laughs> to like a median 
political aspirations. <laughs> he's, he's the, this is what I was going to yeah. say, is that, like, you have definitely thought about this more than he did at any point in the writing or release of this record. <laughs> but, I mean, like, when I say elite, I mean as in, like, in the milieu of, like, no, I know, serious, I know, I know. like, professional musicians like, yeah, without... Yeah. The, like, the non-reflexivity is the thing that is leaking out so heavily. Yes. That's exactly no, the point. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, I just... Yeah. It's, and I, I think that it's, I think that there, there, there's definitely a point where it's like you, um, or I should say, um, like if this is something that, uh, Vernon considered, would he have even done it at all? And I think the answer is no, but it's, yeah, I mean, like hundred percent, I think the mistake this record makes is trying to do that. Yes, at all, when that's like clearly not entirely a concern of him. But yeah. at the same time, it's, I think if if Bonnie Vare does become like a decentralized uh uh like communal uh like performance group the way Justin clearly wants it's i think eventually that sort of mentality will kind of also just fade away with it it's it's yeah, i think no, i think totally i think fair. Justin it's in interviews like Justin is a very jovial and like funny guy i mm -hmm. it's which I I think in like contrast with his lyrics, I think he does. I think there is like a self esteem thing to that, uh, where he's he's like ah, you know, it's it's very much like OPN, where it's like he makes like very like moody and like powerful music, but he's like ah, you know, that's just kind of like whatever. I'm just yeah, chilling. He's just a fucking dude. So he's a dude. it's I think uh, I it's <laughs> uh, so it's not to say that like it's. Uh, I think Alexis, I think you and Justin might have the same opinions on this album, like come like five or six years or so. Whereas, like, yeah, that was kind of dumb yeah. that I was doing that. Oh well. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So yeah. it's, you you did beat him to the punch. But it's uh, yes. yeah. Good I I like this album. It's I uh dang, this is my favorite Bonnie Iver album. Damn. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is—it's automatically become my favorite Bonnie Bear album because I like didn't particularly get on with Twenty Two A Million, and like there are some songs that are indeed like White Boy does folk. Uh, sorry, sorry, White Boy does like soul, effectively, mm -hmm. just like with a different instrumental set. But it works. It fucking does. Like the sound is very, very nice. Like it is. he knows what the fuck he is doing. Um, I don't want to like ignore that while we go in on the degree to which like I vibe with him as a as like a singular creator in a in the process of like abandoning singular creatorhood mm -hmm. oh, from, from a reputation well, we of singular creatorhood yeah. yeah while we are going in on that can i just quickly dunk on you man like for having a fucking gorilla self-titled ass title yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, come on <laughs> It's literally so true. They, they, <laughs> you just murdered Boo. No, it's Gorilla Self. It's Man Research, Clapper, Sound Check, yes, Gravity, exactly. New Genius, Brother. Shut the fuck up, dude. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> uh, oh do you, you want to have like another three minute incidental thing to like scream about the new Gorilla's project? No, it's I, I've said oh, my piece. It's now it's a guy that doesn't understand that his time is up. Uh, uh, Damon Albarn with the Gorillas project right there. Uh, mm. Mm. That's all I want to say about that. 
It's, uh, it's, they, they have basically, uh, they've essentially abandoned the lore for gorillas. So it's like you lose like 75% of your fan base there. And the music is just okay. <laughs> so all the gorillas yeah. is left for is YouTube commenters. So best yeah. of luck to, best of luck to Damon. I hope you can sell all of those 270 euro, uh, vinyl packages. I, I is a, uh, I, I is a good album. I like it a lot. It's, I also, uh, rags at the same time. I also affirm your, um, yeah, I was, I was going to like, really just like, like, it's like your deep hatred, your immense dissatisfaction <laughs> with it. What that's, that's not even like a thing. Um, yeah, I'd like, this is an album that's very interesting to listen to. That's full of good ideas. That makes me wish I was listening to an actual Bruce Hornsby record. You can go listen <laughs> to an actual Bruce Hornsby record. He's really fucking good, actually. Seems from the South Side, incredible. Great. Uh, yeah, I feel similarly. I like it. I think it has problems. I have some problems with it. Uh, aside from like four songs, I kind of wish I was listening to Hey What the whole time. Mm. Fair enough. The different direction to go, but yeah. I did also just completely coincidentally look at my, like, when we were poking around in the Indie Head server about this, what my favorite low tracks actually are. And, um... It turns out that, like, as much as I love Hey What as a record... Where is the where is the list gone? Um, all of my um, top picks are from Double Negative, which is strange. Interesting. I think that kind of makes sense. Double like, Negative has some real... Some real it's got some monumentals on it. It's got some monumental beasts. Yeah. Yes. Uh, except Mo. for the title track of Hey What, which is the most monumental of oh, the yeah. beasts. That, that's a, diff a different sense and kind of monumental, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, low sidebar there. Oh, yeah. Uh, shout out to Low, another incredible band doing incredible things with PJ Button helping yep. them out. Yeah. Yep. Is it time to I, yeah. get piped? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be time to step into the Malone zone. Malone it is. Zone. It is.
Callie well. fucking Malone. Uh, Lily, please take it away. Oh, God. So, yeah, we're talking about Callie Malone's Living Torch. Um, a, a record that I have fallen harder and faster for probably more than any record in, like, the last several years, maybe. Like, I have listened to this thing, no joke, probably close to, like, a hundred times in the last month. Like, at least yeah. once a day. Um, it just immediately wormed its way into the absolute bottom of my heart, and Callie Malone has wormed her way into my brain as just this figure that I, I'm just, I'm so happy she exists, and I truly think in quiet ways she is, well, well, we'll talk about why, but I think she is this, like, is gonna become this, like, really radical figure, and I'm very fascinated, as someone who, like, was not into her until Living Torch, uh, I'm so fascinated by the sort of, like, culture or fan subculture that has cropped up around her, because she is just this, like, yeah, complete anomaly to me and I think to understand why she is not just like great but important you kind of need to understand her in the context of like the last hundred years of modern classical music essentially um because she is so much of a rebuke to kind of all of that the the very important bit of context here for my particular relationship with her is that like back when I had kind of a tangible online persona of any kind a central part of it was um, that one of my key personality traits was had a bad time at music school, uh, which I did. <laughs> uh, and kind of the same reasons I had a very bad time in my fucking conservatory music education are the same reasons why Callie Malone is like exceptionally radical and important to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to try and make this as quick as possible. And Alexis, feel free to, to hop in if you feel I'm missing anything, but like, to roll the clock back a hundred years, coming out of the uh, 19th century, you know, up until that point, like music, or at least music as we think of it in relation to like the Western art music canon, i.e. old European dudes, uh, has been like very, very militantly tonal as a product of like all these impositions the church was making in order to like keep their cultural stranglehold on that continent. As that starts to break up, you know, you get like, you're, um, oh my God, literally how am I blanking on Wagner? You know, you get your Wagners and you get your Mahlers, you know, you get these kind of like new modernist composers who are working a little more with like, you know, chromaticism, et cetera, breaking out of the tonal mode. And then you get this um, group of composers in the 40s and 30s, uh, the second Viennese school, who uh, invent uh, what's called 12-tone serialism. Um, and I'm, I'm going into detail to this degree for the listener. I'm sure. I mean, we mentioned serialism earlier. Let's yeah, let's do, do the full thing. We did. Serialism is really the big the big elephant in the room here. Like once serialism gets invented, you know, it is this genuinely novel novel and radical thing. Like the the second Viennese school and like Arnold Schoenberg, its founder, like his whole fucking thing was like we have been subjected to this like regime of tonality that has been holding musical expression back. And I want to like break away from that completely according to these very like strict rules in which like you know you have a tone row where like no tone can be repeated and everything is set out according to these like very specific numerical values and pitch values and there's no such thing as tonality there's no more tonal center or sense of progression to anything like it is just these mathematical arrangements of notes and it, it's cool it's also like famously controversial people like rioted when they first heard it um Thank you. 
and but it also carries with it i don't know some kind of like troubling implications because the problem is what happens is that essentially serialism for a certain sect of composers becomes like the new regime that then is like militantly pushed onto people uh and that sort of gets carried on in two different institutions on the continent so we go from like the Viennese school in the 30s, roughly, to in the 50s, you have uh, what's called the GRM in Paris, uh, the the uh, something to the Chelsea Musicale, I'm blanking on the name, uh, started by like Pierre Schaeffer and Thierry Henry, and they essentially invent whole cloth music concrete where they're like, well, yeah, this field recording is music because I organized it and played it on a record. And I played like these multiple field recordings on different gramophones on top of each other. And again, because it is like structured by a human being to some degree, it is music. And then you also have the Darmstadt School in central Germany. Um, led by uh, Pierre Boulez and also a fucking granddaddy of modern serialism and electroacoustic music, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, a fucking nutbag of a guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they take, um, you know, these sort of like, not even non-tonal, but non-pitch-centric timbral ideas that the GRM is sort of playing around with and then sort of reincorporate that back into, a, you know, a semi-conventional musical arrangement. And like, there's the Stockhausen piece, Contacta, where like, he is using this like insane wall of like a kajillion oscillators to try and replicate the sound of or the timbre of actual instruments perfectly and then using them to like bleed them into each other in the score uh in such a way that like you cannot tell like whether a sound is being generated by an instrument or by a computer Klangfarben melody yeah And thus electroacoustic music as we like still kind of know it today is born, which is great, uh, except that it basically just kind of like stops there on some level. Mm. Uh, in part because this music is like very heavily serialized and the philosophies that like a lot of these mid-century uh, electroacoustic guys are carrying around are like, you know, with time have been shown to become like increasingly dated and problematic so like fast forward to me coming to music school the next most important thing in all of this <laughs> um but what you get for an entire half century is this extremely radical mu musical like notion that doesn't really move forward on an ideological level at all uh and again is like heavily militantly serialized it's like everything has to be prearranged like there can no, be no repetition of like tones or rhythms or whatever no discrete musical like unit like essentially this whole thing has to be like inscrutable as possible in order to be considered valid to such an extreme that like you pretty much need like to sit down with the score along with a piece of music and have the like requisite education to analyze that score in order to derive any enjoyment from it because no expressive character is coming through sonically like at all pretty much if it is it's only in like the vaguest of sense if senses. i can jump in very and quickly in terms of like the ideology do. of serialism um i think it's very important that like vienna school in the second the second period vienna school like first vienna school refers to a different sort of philosophical back uh group of people later vienna school means not only um anton weben but also theodore yes. adorno um and i think that's mm -hmm. like a crucial keystone for this that like 
in the like pre-war modernist impulse to like revolutionize culture in the moment where like actual socialism might be potentially possible and was indeed in Vienna for an extended period of time. Um, like modernist aesthetics started to become a component of architecture uh, as part of the socialist social program. Like this is, <laughs> this is an environment where like philosophical and aesthetic responses to fascism integrated into music is like a thing that's being explored. Um, Adorno is a Marxist. He is a cultural critique and a social theorist, but he is a Marxist fundamentally. That organizes his politics. And the Second World War shatters politics in such a way that, like, the sorts of potentialities for, like, positive, like, developmental growth are just, like, disallowed so fundamentally in, like, philosophical thought. Um, however, the aesthetic sensibilities that were brought along in modernism alongside a socialist project become detached because modernism becomes the property of capitalism. Um, yep. And in so doing, like, the potentialities of, like, actual revolutionary, like, aesthetics, like take a massive, massive nosedive when they become calcified in, like, Western academia in, like, out, well, outside of places where actual socialist politics are evolving and, like, rising up. Like, this isn't to say, like, there is all sorts of centres of, like, resistance and, like, complexity in politics going on, but, like, large-scale trajectory, like, the, the failure of the socialist project and the, like, emotional shattering of the Second World War, absolutely, in my head, like, are fundamental to understanding, like, where the aesthetic possibilities of music like start and are like like stunted in some way yeah um, yeah completely thank you for chiming in with that because yeah that is ab like that context is absolutely essential and that's like how this whole ostensibly radical thing like caves on it caves in on itself and becomes this like increasingly insular echo chamber over the mm -hmm. next like 50 to 60 years um to the point where like by the turn of the century you essentially have these people who are like making music in this vein the same way it was being made 50 years ago entirely for each other and like not the listening public who they are immensely condescending towards <laughs> um and it just fucking stays there like you said it like it calcifies um there's actually this might be a good time to pull up and alexis you'll enjoy this because of who it, it's kind of backwardly dunking on but do either of you know the famous like uh, it was like in the late 90s, Stockhausen, this magazine reached out to him with like a yes! bunch of, you know, the sort of like cutting edge of electronic music at the time and asked him to like give his thoughts or whatever. Uh, I think it is such a wonderful window <laughs> into the mindset of like these fucking guys. There's actually a great, I found, um, yeah, a really great quote that like puts the whole thing sort of in a nutshell, um, which is... Um, yeah, this is from Kurt Hanolka. And so um, it says that, like, the phrase Darmstadt school was used as a belittling term by commentators to describe any music written in an uncompromising style, despite the presence of many composers and schools which forbid uh, serialism and modernism. Like, oh, no, wait, sorry, this is actually the wrong quote. Um, although that is also <laughs> of relevant. Um, but yeah, like people start commenting on this stuff as it is as as if it is like a cult and a sect, which like to a degree it is because it is so um, closed off that yeah um, they end up in this mindset where okay here's the quote yeah um, it, they're working in an effort to quote make the public believe that the most advanced music of the day was no more than a fancy cooked up by a bunch of aberrant conspirators conniving at war against music proper. <laughs> 
I mean, uh, I, I mean, again, this goes hand in hand with the sort of like implicit elitism of the Adorno critique of like pop culture. Yes. Like, like or do you view something as like the last bastion of like progressive and transformative thought or like something sidled off to literally an elite who only interpret and talk to themselves and each other while like dismissing the entire rest of culture? Like same dialectic, just in a, in a particular field here. Um, yeah, I will, completely. I will add very, very, very slightly that like, while I was still in formal music education, which I wasn't for very long, um, just doing like GCSEs and A-levels, um, like school qualifications in the UK. I wrote a piece mm-hmm. very obviously like doing Steve Reiki things, but just trying to build it was just like, I was tr- trying to use stacked intervals and like constant, constant intervals of moving them in their relations and seeing what I could do with them. And um, my uh, music teacher who had studied under Stockhausen um, said it's very Berkeley and meant it thoroughly dismissively, which I thought was just like <laughs> in, re- in reflection, very, very, very funny. Um, uh, that is very funny and like very true to my own experiences. Yeah. And yeah, to like put a point on the elitism. Um, so in that article, uh, one of the people they st- sent Stockhausen an example of was Aphex Twin. <laughs> um, this, I'm just going to read and, you know, you can picture the kind of like Werner Herzog tone he would have said this with uh, mm-hmm. on your own. Um, so this is the quote. I heard the piece Aphex Twin of Richard James carefully. Already just fucking incredible (laughs) to mix that up. I think it would be very helpful if he listens to my work Song of the Youth, which is electronic music and a young boy's voice singing with himself, because he would then immediately stop with all these post-African repetitions, and he would look for changing tempi and changing rhythms, and he would not allow to repeat any rhythm if it were varied to some extent and if it did not have a direction in its sequence of variations. That's so um, crazy. I can't imagine anybody talking to Aphex Twin like that at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And but that is very indicative of the mindset. Another good anecdote is um I was taking my like fourth year electroacoustic class and the prof like, you know, would bring in like examples of stuff for us to listen to sometime. And one morning we came in, he was like, yeah, just to like talk about some ideas. I want you all to like hear this piece uh, by this band that like, you know, this album, it's like, yeah, it's popular music, but like, honestly, I find myself listening to it a ton lately. Uh, and I think there's some interesting things going on it. So I want to hear what you all think. And he played us a track off the knife shaking the habitual. <laughs> <laughs> Approaching it with like the tone of like, I don't normally listen to popular music, but. Oh my God. Uh, Completely I, wild. I actually also, do. also on this site is the Stockhausen Plastic Man quote, which I do find delightful for how thoroughly it dunks on Richie Hahn, even though I think Stockhausen is like <laughs> fundamentally in the wrong here. Yeah. Um, it starts with 30 or 40, I don't know, I haven't counted them, fifths in parallel, always the same perfect fifths you see changing from one to the next, and then comes in hundreds of repetitions of one small section of an African rhythm, da-da-dum, etc. And I think it would be helpful if you listened to Cycle for Percussion, which is only a 50-minute long piece of mind for a percussionist, but there he will have a hell to understand the rhythms, and I think he will get a taste for very interesting non-metric and non-periodic rhythms. I know he wants to have a special effect in dancing bars or wherever it is on the public who like to dream away with such repetitions but he should be very careful because the public will sell him out immediately for something else if a new kind of musical drug is on the market so he should be very careful and separate as soon as possible from the belief in this kind of public i mean immediately what? it's like so painfully tied to a like a theory of the the audience like a yes. theory of the social that i mean like we just don't fucking buy but you know 
no, that is completely belittling. And like, I ran into that kind of condescension myself. Like, I remember once a like TA or something telling me that like, if the audience has discerned your intentions with a piece, then like you have failed as a composer. Like your primary concern should be to outwit and elude them like as much as humanly possible. And if they detect any trace of like expression or sentiment in your music, like that is a categorical failure. That's like crazy. Those guys are 2015. Those guys are categorical dumbasses. That's crazy. No kidding. Damn. Uh, yeah, it's nuts. And also, like, at the very least in the culture today, and um, there's a really great, uh, she does. She did some really great YouTube, YouTube work last year. This uh, composer, Sarah Feldman, like, kind of talked about this very similar experience I had. And she went to Concordia, which is, like, the major electroacoustic school uh, in Canada that came up earlier. And she said, like, I was so excited to get into what I thought was going to be this super, like, forward thinking and, and, you know, avant-garde world of all this really innovative art music. And what I found is that, like, they were equally as indebted to this dated ideology as, like, the tonal music, you know, schools were. It's just they were, like, militantly ascribed to the ideology of, like, mid-20th century electroacoustic music and anything that, like you know, was considered to be, like, effeminate or queer or sentimental or expressive or populist at all was just, like, dismissed, you know, out of pocket because, like, it has no, you know, conceivable value to them. And I ran into that, too. Like, there is are a lot of, like, exclusionary and vaguely bigoted undertones to the way that people talk about, like, it is literally, if you can imagine, people in the 21st century who, like, are espousing enlighten er, enlightenment era notions of art of like well the artistic ideal you know is entirely in in you know and i hate to binarize like this but this really is how they fucking think of like you know the <laughs> the intellectual rigorous studious manly approach to things you know we have no need for the the frivolous effeminate realm of feelings or whatever <laughs> it's nuts it's genuinely fucking um, hilarious but also like insipid and like you know it it is everywhere like we know this is going to be everywhere so yeah 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 and i like and you know a number of other people i've talked to had a very very hard time keeping our heads above water in this environment is like women or queer people or whatever like there was just no space made for any sensibility that wasn't like okay keep like ripping off stockhausen and bulez like that's all you're allowed to do and if you do that great um, not to like reduce it entirely to that. And it should be said that like, curiously and leading into the Callie Malone of it all, like if you look at that period of time since, you know, the GRM and Darmstadt were founded in the fifties, like there have been relatively basically no composers in this field who have really crossed over. Like I was mm-hmm. trying to itemize it earlier, like what, you know, by the book classical music composers have crossed over into the popular conscious in that time and it really is like it's the minimalists um it's penderecki uh is who's kind of the only other extant example of like a you know true serialist crossing over uh ligeti and like arvo parrot and the latter two primarily just from their inclusion in film scores so like there has just been a really hard line divide set up you know basically of the classical music world's own volition of like it's high school shit it's like there's classical and there's popular and classical good and popular bad and bass and like it's like candy like you can listen to it but like don't do it too much or it'll turn your ears bad or whatever yeah good it's ostensibly the mentality yeah i mean i said i did a lot of coursing when i was young and like it means like the version of that i have in the back of my head is like i know that there is like a massive popular 
audience for like choral music that is would in this vernacular be pop music in inverted commas like the eric whittakers of the world yep. who are like making stuff that is like lush tonal beautiful like reverential like fits the like like archetype of like taking the somewhere between like chamber music and liturgical music and like romantic ideal of the concert venue and like Mm -hmm. up, like adding a sufficient amount of like modern post jazz spice so that it's not like thoroughly outmoded but like fundamentally that is like in the in this vernacular pop music while it's getting yep, fantastically completely. popular and like carving out niches where like like genuine classical music like finds space um in, in you know in pop vernacular yeah yeah, oh they God, kind yeah. of hate when that happens. And anytime <laughs> that happens, it's suddenly considered like not classical anymore. Although to a degree, it should also be said like Eric Whitaker, even though he is like wildly derided, is still ostensibly considered classical because also so much of this is based on like association. Like mm. which side of that divide you fall on and is in part determined on like where you went to school. And oh, so yeah. like, for example, to, to bring it back around, you know, someone like Tim Hecker, who is completely on the avant-garde of the avant-garde, has like no fucking suction or clout in these communities at all, just because he's not like formally educated or whatever. And, you know, he's signed to like 4AD and shit. Like they <laughs> by and large throw that out the door entirely. And I'm speaking yep. in broad terms to make a point. Obviously there's a nuance here. I'm just thinking about like all the classical music heads in the comments coming to get me. Um, but generally speaking, that is the trend, like that it is this sort of, it has been this insular self-perpetuating machine that still thinks it is on the cutting edge despite having not particularly progressed at all in the last 50 years and you know having been completely lapped by all the really radical shit that is happening like almost at the center of pop music now yeah uh, um, but they, I, they just I, have no time for it i will say before we move on if we have any classical music heads in the chat please dm me um <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too any any recovering electroacoustic students out there we uh, gotta talk don't talk to um, me. Um, do, you, do you, you guys don't have to talk so to this, me. It's I, I don't have any reference. <laughs> <laughs> so this does bring us all to uh, Callie Malone. The Callie who, Malone of it. Yeah. The Callie, the Callie Malone, Malone of it. Of it. That's such a good sentence. That's so funny. I, so I, I thought you said so, that and I copied you. Did I say that? I thought so. Anyways, it's a good anyway, sentence. One of us said it. It is a great sentence. So, like, brief context on her. She, like, you know, comes up in Denver, you know, spends her, like, adolescence uh, in the Denver, like, experimental music scene, gets involved in a lot of electroacoustic music that way, and, like, has, you know, a conservatory education for a young age. Um, meets another composer when she's around, like, 17, 18, named Ellen Arkbro, who's a Swedish, like, modern classical composer. They get along great and, like, start a duo together. Uh, Ellen Arkbro asks her to, like, come over to Sweden to visit, and then she just kind of, like, stays there for the next decade uh, and like does her education there and what is fucking unreal about Callie Malone that is like see this is the thing that like I always wanted to do in school and just was not talented or perceptive enough to be able to do was to like play by their rules of this like really staunch serialist like still modernist approach but be able to inject some kind of expressive core into it and that is ostensibly what Callie Malone has done in an incredibly short time like her music up until this point uh is dealing in what is you know what we would think of as like serialized canon form like if you listen to her early like 
organ dirges and you know the way those would get expanded on uh the sacrificial code album like those are pieces drawn up from like um essentially like matrix scores uh using like numerical values and dot grids that she is sort of navigating like one voice at a time and recording the parts separately and compiling them later um to create these like really incredible like long form canon structures and it is like serialized and really regimentally organized uh, really rigidly organized and yet it has so much fucking heart to it like sacrificial code is an unbearably like emotionally moving listen at least to me like there there is something so on the surface about it and to me i'm just like oh my god you did it like you threaded this needle that like i never thought could really be threaded of like you have taken like the this oppressive language and used it towards this like really liberatory expressive potential in a way that like essentially no other composer has done in this particular context like to date i'm just like holy shit someone finally like broke the sound barrier on this stuff this is amazing um like and also to talk about the kind of like i don't know the the sort of like weird twitter cult of kelly malone as well that sort of cropped up <laughs> this, in is, this is uh, this is this is i it's if i can interject here this is this is basically yeah. all the reference i have to like discuss this record where it's there's like five people on my timeline that treat kelly malone like Nicki minaj yes exactly it's exactly. insane it's so funny shout out yet shout out yet shout out yet absolutely <laughs> And to put that in immediate context too, like within, since I kind of like got out of school around 2017, there has been this interesting phenomenon of these, you know, incidentally, like composers who are incidentally primarily women working in this very like minimalist space who are crossing over into the popular sphere to a degree. Like you have Kelly Malone, you have, you know, Katerina Barbieri came up earlier. Um, there's Sarah Devachi, there's Carolee Cloverdale, who's a Tim Hecker collaborator. You know, they're all sort of crossing over to the, like, fringes of the ambient music sphere a little bit, or, like, popular ambient and drone music. And, you know, as we said yeah. earlier, like, band camp core. I'd add Claire Rousey is one um, of the important people here. Yep, yep, Claire Rousey as well. Uh, uh, who just, I have not listened to a ton, but yes, should absolutely yeah. be mentioned. Uh, and also Caroline Shaw, um, who, you know, had a bit of a crossover moment herself, speaking of choral music. There's this really fascinating inverse correlation, though, where even though they're crossing over, the more seriously all of these composers are taken in one sphere, the less seriously they are taken in the other. Like, Caroline Shaw is probably the furthest on, like, the classical end of the spectrum where, like, she's crossed over a little bit, but it's still, like, you know operating as a conventional like modern classical composer would and then yeah um clara as you'd probably be at the opposite end of that where yeah. um you know she she has her lane that she's in kelly malone just completely fucking breaks this yep. where she is taken incredibly seriously in the classical music sphere like it should not be overlooked that living torch was produced or, or was released by the grm that hall of stodgy phonograph playing with dudes from the 50s that i mentioned earlier she studies at the grm right now she has a residency there this is their record and it is like this viral twitter sensation like it just if you had told me five years ago about that i would have been like that's just fucking impossible like nobody would ever let that happen and she has managed to bridge the gap completely in a way that is sort of i mean hopefully in terms of its long term impact will like 
erode that kind of binary to a degree, or at the very least make that kind of mobility between spheres more and more possible for artists. And it is like so exciting and affirming and moving to me to see someone who is, like I said, retooling this language that was like very oppressive in my immediate experience of it. And like bringing such a heart out of it that it is able to like get like Bandcamp Friday traction and shit. Like it, it's incredible. It's unreal what she has done. Um, It's genuinely wild. And I, I'd like, I'm trying to think like the place to start of this might be the aesthetics. So before we like talk about the content of the music itself, because there's a lot to talk about there. Yes. But bring it back to this. Um, Boo. Yes. I hope you are activated sufficiently. Um, Like, how to sell Callie Malone's music is like a obvious problem because like there is a like a quite straightforward like recipe here. It's um like minimalist aesthetics in the sense of like sans serif fonts, white and black monochrome. There is like um like a, a sense of serenity, a sort of like uh a, a put togetherness and a like a, a casual softness about the way she dresses and presents herself. Yep. Like, it does rest on the fact she's also, like, a gorgeous woman. Like, just an absolutely, like, beautiful person. Like, there is, like, a... There is a way in which I see a continuity between this and a certain kind of way that, like... It's not even particularly fashionable right now, but, like, pop acts have sold themselves this way before. Like, new wave mm-hmm. pop acts particularly. Like, this is this is a vernacular that, like, makes sense in pop music. Um, yeah, she is a drone composer who uses the aesthetic vernacular of a pop star. That yeah. is a great way to put 100%. it. Whether she means to or not, that is like kind of what has happened in terms of her like place in the culture. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, though, the thing that I posted was Colin, uh, like the Dodge's artwork and fly is being produced by Colin Fletcher, who is, as Boo pointed out, like the graphic designer that everyone has been cribbing for the last three, four, five years. The legend. It's mm-hmm. it's him and Rudnick, and that's who everybody yeah, steals I mean, from. Yeah. And like Rudnick has the more intricate, more, you know, like like texturally specific kind of like more textual based um kind of aesthetic. And like this is flatter. This is more like iconic, more yeah. More more totemic. And like and to use it in this context makes perfect sense like absolutely perfect sense um but is also on like the same list of artists as like charlie xcx and post malone and who else was it was this um a eve chima thing yep was that how this came up yeah there we go <laughs> in which case yeah like that's the sort of like suite of artists you can put the like marketing material and like aesthetic mm-hmm. package next to um, you said this is a GRM album. Can we do the cover watch now and like get it get it in? I I will. I, I was almost wondering. I think we should talk about the cover watch because this, this ties into what we're talking I, about. I, I also think it ties. It, it does. It's. I think the the GRM portraits. I should say like this. This was commissioned by uh, uh, like uh, Shelter Press and uh, Ina Grimm or whatever. That's a cool name for a tabletop character. Ina Grimm. Um, <laughs> I believe it's, I, it's I, like Ina GRM or whatever. Dumb. They should have gone the tabletop route. It's see, this is why they need to listen to the young people, which is ties into my mm-hmm. stuff here. So uh, the the in these are these are less album covers and more information systems. Uh, yeah. 
as they yeah. are defined. Like it's they are not they are not intent on capturing the artist. They're more intent on having. I mean, like literally, they capture the artist because it's just like a press photo of them. But yeah. it's the the message here is that within the in it's they are. <laughs> the artist is trapped within the boring information system of the GRM portraits uh, commissioning label. Uh, yes, <laughs> where it's I it's I I get very much uh, what what was what's the uh, uh, OPN uh, Alexis you might be able to answer this it's uh, OPN's drawn and quartered cover. Uh, is like is like it's like riffing on a bunch of like uh like old electronic music, uh like it's it is expressly a parody. Um, oh, I do not I do not know top of my head. Um, it's, but I like it's if you yeah, look at I that, see what you're saying with the with like the cubes and it's, stuff. It's it's it is specifically intent to riff on uh like album covers as like informational system. It's a product of the label as opposed to a product of the artist. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. And I, I think this is a very clear and refined take on uh, on a system that, as Lily was talking about, is very stodgy and stupid. Um, yeah, I it's I mean, I mean, just like to be to be clear, like how this comes about, like this is with sufficient distance from GRM itself. Like this isn't GRM. It's portraits. GRM, yes. GRM portraits. It's got artists yes. like uh, Okin Lee, who I absolutely love. He's an like incredible mm -hmm. Korean cellist uh, improviser. Um, I, I, I see like, the legend Jimmy O'Rourke down here as well. <laughs> yeah, Jim O'Rourke's on here, but like uh, Lucy Relton's here, like a great selection of artists who I love. But with the little like tag thing in their biography of originally created with Editions Migo, like this yes, is yes, this it, is it, like that's what I wanted to bring up is that this is like a liaison effort between yeah, um, the like, deceased Peter Rayburg of Mego, yeah, and like the GRM massive like tragedy that he's passed. But yeah, like the um. Yeah. And Migo being like one of the great labels of modern experimental electronic stuff and related like improv things as well. Like yeah. some iconic, iconic stuff has come through Migo. Um, but like they clearly like it feels like I don't know this, but it feels like they were like panicking, knowing that they were like out of their completely out of credibility and um, relevance in popular culture. And scrambled for the like most credible nearest touchstone in pop music, which happens to be Migo. And like, it it fucking works. It does. But then it does. Then we end up with the like, how do we reprocess and like reharmonize these this introduction of new artists into us as like the the dominating like. It's yeah. Know, th the this formalist, is the formalist structure that needs to dominate and like be uh, be the framework within which you do your expression. This is a GRM product. You are safe. Is uh yeah. is the message I get here. It's I don't know. It's uh I I was not aware of like it's I I my bad for like it's just focusing on my idea and not noticing that Editions Migo is like literally like in the Bandcamp sidebar no, no, there. No, 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 like but it's you, you I, need to do digging to find it, but you know. It's I um I don't really like this cover art. I don't think it's because it's it goes right back into like the anything that is like sentimental or populist uh or like tender uh, to an extent like to the extent that like the OG Callie Malone uh cover arts are like gets completely like paved over in like favor of something that 
does not inform the music so much as it does just like inform the people that are releasing it, if that makes any sense. So and that that that's I, I find that boring. Interesting. I feel very, very differently. I think this cover, I do understand what everyone's saying, but I, despite that, I still think this cover is kind of like the perfect visual sort of like embodiment of the Cali Malone phenomenon. Yes, I I think a good way to spin that is like, hey, Cali fucking, Cali's doing this shit. Like, fuck you. Like it's, there's an act of defiance of Cali being on here, like against the grain, I think, which is cool. Yeah, completely. The fact that this is like, you know, it has the GRM logo on it and all this sort of like, you know, oppressive obtuse geometry. But like also, you know, that's like a very good reflection of, you know, the sort of structural origins of the music yeah, as yeah, well. Like, and I think you it's can important. kind of... She doesn't disown this entirely. Like this isn't like I'm doing electroacoustic music, but it's, it's just yeah, like to be keeping. Like there is lines of meaningful continuity and that's important to hold. To be clear, if there... If yeah, there... it's defiant within that yes, continuum. If, if there yeah. was, if, if it was, if this was like the only one that did not have like the GRM... Uh, like portrait format on it, I would probably be like, eh, it's no, it's I, I'm just affirming what you guys have said, absolutely, right? And also, like, I think an essential bit of context to at least what I derive from the energy here is that that press photo of her is derived from um, a shoot she did for the French clothing brand Le Mer, where she is wearing that dress is made out of a print by um, this artist Martine Ramirez, who was like this exiled mid-century American artist who, you know, was like mentally ill uh, and consigned to, you know, a colony essentially, but like became this masterful painter in private. So I think there's so much energy that is derived from the fact that like you have like the GRM architecture and then within that you have this like incredibly like contemporary looking young woman who is this unbelievably striking presence where you're just like, whoa like anyone who is willing to rock the shit out of their hair going gray that hard in their 20s like definitely knows something the rest of us don't yeah and just like helps to emit this aura of her as this sort of like like this weird like mythical figure status that she has very very quickly arisen to and so the fact that she is appearing in such a contemporary way in a way that is so charged within again like the literal geometric architecture of this old hat thing that has like reigned supreme over continental european electroacoustic music for the last mid-century it's just like yes this is like the perfect metaphor for what she is doing she has like incepted herself into the thing and she is like winning and tearing it apart from the inside yeah um i i really adore this cover on that level yeah, I mean, I, I like, I fully, fully understand, like, its communicative function and the, like, fight going on within it. I kind of lean on the positive side just because I think the portrait is the thing it is. Like, it is so fucking compelling as an image. I just think the composition is beautiful. Um, and, like, yeah, the, I, the I don't think is... this album catches in the way that it does if they pick a different press photo for yeah. this cover. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> We talk about the album. Let's talk about the fucking album. <laughs> oh, this good thing, good so thing good. it repeats itself quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh. Yeah, it's so funny. I was trying to think about like how would I like give the plot summary of this album to someone else, and it's like, well, it doesn't really like do a whole lot for the first eighteen, but you know, it, it's worth it. It's worth it. You got to stick with it. Um, and then it, it, and then it fucking be sets in- itself on fire. Exactly, like a torch that's alive in some capacity. <laughs> Um, 
but yeah, I, I the construction of this album, I think, is also an important thing to consider in terms of sort of like what you hear for the final product, where like, you know, this is commissioned by the GRM originally as a multi-channel piece for their like Acousmium setup, which is like this insane multi-channel spatialized setup that they have that's almost like this like geodesic dome of speakers. And good God, I would commit like non-victimless crimes to be able to hear this album in that context. Yeah. If anyone has never heard music spatialized in that way, the best way, like the best equivalent is uh, that I can draw is like, like spatialized music to the stereo channel system is the same that like a VR headset is to a TV. Like it's this completely different immersive psychoacoustic thing. And so Another, I haven't acknowledged yet that like a, another important thing that she's working with is like alternate tunings. Like she is mostly working in like a just intonation and mean tone intonation. Um, I don't want to get into the whole history of like tuning systems. That's a whole other diatribe. But essentially, like you know, we think of like equal temperament, which is the twelve keys of the piano, as the only tuning system that exists. When in fact, there are plenty of other ones in other cultures. And also, equal temperament like kind of fucking sucks and is stupid, <laughs> just on like a mathematical level. Yep. And it's very silly that we, as as is the case with a lot of things in like Western classical music, it is very silly that we have chosen this as our fucking thing. And so, there's a lot of composers right now working in alternate tunings, especially now that like electronic you know, music production software has made that like much, much easier. You can just tune to a set of frequencies. And that is exactly what she did for Living Torch. She was using like an ARP 2500 to get all these tones in just intonation, which is like a seven tone system where essentially everything is arranged according to a mathematical ratio that makes all of the intervals perfect with each other. Whereas in equal temperament, like, you know, if you hear the interval names like perfect fourth, perfect fifth, and you know, you don't hear that ascribed to any other interval, just intonation fixes that essentially so everything takes on this entirely different quality uh and so she is recording these like sounds on the arp and then also getting the frequencies of this just intonation that he's she has set and is getting her ensemble players to essentially tune themselves to whatever frequency she has given them and then she just records them playing back notes uh and you know does that recording process and then over the preceding year and a half like stitches this all together in music production software with the help of i think pure data as well as listed like under her credits uh for the album which i find to be kind of fucking incredible that this is a collage work essentially like in the true electroacoustic fashion these are individual like sound recordings that are being stitched together and shaped in relation to each other and that's really unreal because this album has so much energy to it yep where like you would be forgiven for thinking that this was a live performance that just like got recorded it is so energetic and spontaneous and all the movement feels so natural and intuitive like it feels like a recorded improvisation almost and the fact that she's able to give it that charge through this like completely fucking dry composition process is like really incredible as well yeah i like <sighs> It's learning and trying to get my head around how the composition and like recording process worked, like absolutely like blows this album sky high because like it does absolutely sound 100% like, yeah, it sounds like a suite that was like composed and conceived of from the start in its full length and then performed as such. Um, I also just fucking love it's an ARP 
Like, ARPs are very cool synthesizers, but they are like synthesizers that I have heard playing like riffs on disco tracks. And <laughs> just knowing that's the that's the piece of machinery making these like gorgeous like siren like tones is it's just cool. I I am so fucking appreciative of it. Um, is this? I don't know her discography well enough to just know for sure. But like, is this the first time she's branched out to like so many different kinds of instrument simultaneously? Like, is she Not ever ever exactly. had? She ever had an ensemble this like multimodal in that sense? A little bit. If you listen to Cast of Mind, there is some like stuff that is very primordial to Living Torch on there, where she is like working with like session players, and you know, I think in that case, it's much more. It is much more like, you know, they're just like playing a score that she's written or whatever. But it's like, it's semi-improvised. Like as she mm-hmm. describes it, you know, the harmonic content is very strict in her pieces, but the um, temporal content is not. Like mm-hmm. she leaves it up to the instrumentalists a little bit. So if you listen to Cast of Mind, like that's the area where she's broaching more into like the conventional electroacoustic realm as opposed to um sacrificial code and dirges which are essentially making electroacoustic music but just on an organ and that's the only instrument in the arrangement yep. so there is like a loose precedent to this and she talks about being in like similar like experimental electroacoustic scenes in denver so i think this is a part of her like musical lineage and she talks about in the press release that like living torches her you know she it's like quote, going back to her electroacoustic roots. So it's almost somewhat of a return, whereas the organ stuff she became very initially known for was like something of a departure for her that she happened upon quite spontaneously, which is just another fascinating thing in her whole trajectory. So there is a loose precedent for that. I will say that although I do love Cast of Mind, the sort of structures of it and the timbral content is a little more like static and restrained um and you know living torch feels like such an arrival like in in light of that where she's Mm. just like okay now i've gone out into the woods and i've come back and i know how to just like ring this form for every bit of potential that it has left in it yeah and I mean, just like the songwriting itself, just like we can, we can go microscopic on it. Like degrees of the scale, like we're hitting, like I, I cannot perfect pitch it, but like I'm hearing five, three, four, flat six. And like- My s- ear is nowhere near that developed, <laughs> but yeah. Um, I could pull up my piano and figure it out. Well, oh, this is actually an interesting thing that I tried. I, I was like, let me see if I can learn is this. Is it because not in any key? In, um, it's not in any key. You would have to like get tune it by ear on a synthesizer. It's, it's literally halfway like... between C and C sharp. So like, um, yeah, exactly. Let me do I, it. In... I tried to get out my piano and, and learn it, and I was like, oh, holy shit! Because also like, it's so hooky in this weird way, especially on Living Torch Two. That like, da 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 da. Like, that's such a tune, and yeah. yet you cannot play it on a piano. But yeah, so like, if the sounds are. I'm assuming you can hear this now. I can't really hear. It's the your mic is taking out all out all the disdain, so it just sounds the sustain, so it just sounds oh, like no. the Undertale soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of plonking. That'll that'll be great for the listener. Though. Yeah, uh, that'll be great for the listener. But yeah, so that is G, E flat. Um, so if we're I'm imagining we're in imaginary C minor this key this piece is not literally in C minor but I'm imagining it is like 
it is both not in a, not in the um, the key of C, nor is it like ambiguously or unambiguously in any particular tonality. So whatever. But yeah, G E flat F A flat. So I managed to circle around an implicit tone center without ever actually hitting it. It has this like yes. beautiful like rolling cyclical, cyclical nature to it because of that. And like, that's just like an ingenious, like quite wonderful bit of songwriting. Like I, I just don't want to over, I would like, I don't think it can really be overstated. Like the ability yeah, to not. string 33 minutes of music out of something this like minimal in content, but this precise in the way it uses it and arranges texture to never make it seem either boring or repetitious because yes, it is repeating, but it is repeating in ways that like evolve and develop a thing that demands its evolution and development. And that's just like yes. the thing to say about Callie Malone at a very basic level is she's a fucking good songwriter, like write yes. fucking good drone ambient music, because like that requires a very specific and very like careful set of skills. And she kind of nails it here. Yeah, she completely does. And yeah, I think that's such a important like thing to single out. Like, you know, this album has the quality of like, you just kind of like are falling through the piece and you know, both the tuning system and the way she is using the tuning system are so essential to that. Where especially like that motif on Living Torch 2, I have tried and I always lose my place in it when I try and sing along. And I think she very cheekily like, you know, a tone will repeat on one cycle around it and then not in the other. So you can never really find the beginning or end of it exactly, um, which is just such a simple device, but one that is used to such great effect because it gets across this kind of like emotional indeterminacy. Speaking of, you know, like Tim Hecker not being prescriptive, this is wonderful because it is expressive without being prescriptive. Like yeah, it is so totally. moving and immediate, but like it is also, it is oblique in a way that doesn't undermine its power. Like part of what I think makes this album special is that like there are as many like ways to hear and interpret this piece of music as there are like people who hear it and moods they can be in and to have such a precise control over your compositional devices so as to create this kind of like perfectly opaque and oblique musical object is just like incredible. Yeah, good. And I, I mean, like, this, I, I, I'm being hokey when I say this, but this does remind me a lot of, like, early OPN with the Juno, like, mm -hmm. in a very positive sense of, like, an artist who knows the ins and outs of their, like, instrument very, very well and is simply, like, evolving and searching through textural and songwriting things that, like, ring the best out of it. It's just, in this case, the timbres are, like, genuinely quite remarkable in themselves because like you don't get this kind of combination of ensemble like controlled in this kind of way very often at all um with this aesthetic sensibility like you do but like often in either much more arch and formal ways and formalistic ways which sort of like inhibit its like lurching like development and motion or you on the other side you get it in ways where it like like we've talked a lot about like Callie Malone's injection of sentimentality or sentiment itself sentimentality is probably the not, not the right way to put it but sentiment I wouldn't even like... say sentiment because sentiment kind of has pejorative connotations but I just think about like expression yeah so the, the reason I say sentiment is I'm reading a bunch of theory that is very specifically about like the uses of political power of sentiment as like a 
a, a way of understanding like how you mediate between motivating action and like ideas like right the the like sentiment is just like a, like an an orientation towards a thing that like <laughs> yeah like deliberateness about orientations towards emotional experiences like that is a thing that like that like bringing emotions up to a surface level where like you're not resolutely like denying your authorial intent about them as the avant-garde composer was but also you're not doing the the flip side thing which i think a lot of like people who get their hands on an ensemble whether it's brass or you know woodwind or organs or whatever like they would reach for a classical instrument in order to inject the sentimentality that like scripts of other classical composers have like offered up for them and this is so resolutely singular and like refusing to like dip into other vernaculars to like train you as to how you should hear these timbres and i think like that's crucial to it like again if like playing them at their own game means something it probably means that like sentiment and expression is built into like structure and flow and composition but not necessarily into like you know te uh, texture and timbre and instrumentation and arrangement because that very much like is still like stretching its limbs through what's possible within like a classical repertoire and i think that's very important to it like it's it's heightened and special because of it yeah yes yeah totally Mm. Um, I also <laughs> wanted to single out because you're talking about the arrangement. It, it's remarkable how minimal this arrangement is. It is trombone, bass, clarinet, and the arp, and then also the Bois à Bourdon, which, like, in looking it up, I think is like this strange, like French hurdy gurdy type device, which I'm pretty <laughs> sure is what at the beginning of Living Torch Two is making that like wonderfully wretched sound that sounds like one of the fucking space bagpipes from Dune. Oh, yeah. Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Love a fucking strange French constructed instrument. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, like exactly. when I said the piece sets itself on fire, you hit the eight minute mark in Living Torch 2, and it literally does sound Tim Hecker esque, like, like searing kinds of yeah. self, like, self, well, like, I almost said self immolated, like, literally, like, drenched itself in overwhelming vibration and intensity in such a way that it, like, shakes it's it is so the, powerful it is the one it is and it's the wonderful thing that like not to be and i'm very anti like analog snobbery but it is a special thing you get out of playing with these old school synths where yeah. you just like on an unconscious level you sense the electricity that is just surging through that arp when like i think it's around like the five or six minute mark when the bottom falls out under like the whole fucking thing and you are just like she cranks the modulation on that thing. Yeah. And like, you are just engulfed in this wave and this like, you are plunked into a chasm of like searing electricity and these mournful drones that are like also really uplifting, but melancholic, but like cathartic, but defeated. Like again, talking about the emotional opacity of it, like you can come at it from all sides emotionally. And yeah, that is just this like, not to be on the nose about it, but it is this electrifying achievement in electronic music where, like, you just kind of, like, ascend to this other plane with this piece of music where, like, it fucking pulls you. Ah. So, hey, that's fucking Love and Torch. It rules. It's, it's great. Love and Torch. It's great. I love it so much. Kelly Malone fucking owns. 
Uh, it, don't if you're part of her Twitter hive, like uh, don't be a weirdo. You know, modern classical composers just want to be left alone. Le- leave her alone and let her do her thing, which is uh, making modern classical better than like pretty much anyone else right now. Yeah, not wrong. Ah, uh, so good. <sighs> so good. Hello, everyone. This is Lily from the future. Well, the future relative to when we recorded this episode, but the past relative to when you are hearing it. Uh, I wanted to chime in with a little bit of a, a postscript transmission because about a month after we recorded this episode, I had the very good fortune of seeing Kelly Malone perform an organ set live and then also give a talk uh, the following day as part of the Future Stops Festival in Toronto, which is a really great contemporary organ music festival that you should totally check out. Um, And getting to have those experiences really crystallized for me a lot of the things that we were sort of circling around in this episode, but didn't necessarily bring to the foreground, just, you know, in the heat of the moment, doing a very, very long recording, you you miss out on some of that stuff. Um, And one thing that occurred to me after the recording is that we kind of failed to, in our discussion of canon form, establish what that actually is to any listeners who might not lo- know. So very, very briefly, canon form, you know, is taking a melodic or, or a rhythmic or a temporal unit or a harmonic unit. It can be any kind of thing. And then offsetting that across different voices so that all of those relationships sort of proliferate and evolve over time. And that is kind of the central construct of Callie Malone's, you know, entire oeuvre up to this point, including I had not realized Living Torch, which is actually uh, itself a a canon in a much more discreet way than um, the uh, the sacrificial code is that that's very obviously canonical, but Living Torches as well. And at the talk, she talked about the fact that you know when you're working with organ pieces, there's this very sort of strict attack and release relationship, and that part of why she used the ARP on Living Torch was that it provided an opportunity to abstract the underlying canon within the piece by, you know, having these very, very slow, gradual attacks. So it's a little bit more diffuse. You can't entirely localize the sort of different offsets uh, that were happening. And kind of the best way to explain canon is funny enough to go back to the conversation we had about piano phase in the Tim Hecker section of the episode, you know, phases and canons they're they're kind of a rectangles and squares relationships and so the construction of piano phase you can't examine that piece in terms of like intervallic quality or any kinds of harmonic function it's purely about the semitone relationships and how they evolve in this sort of wonderfully symmetrical way over time where you are hitting the most dissonant uh you know phase set and then it snaps into the most consonant phase set right in the middle where it's almost all perfect fifths and then you know it proliferates back out and you complete this you know grand tonal cycle around the whole thing so those are the kind of principles we're we're talking about um and yeah i I think i just kind of wanted to establish that and seeing her and getting to hear her play like sacrificial code pieces and some new organ pieces she's working on which are absolutely wonderful um what it helped me understand is that 
what really sets her apart, and you hear this on Living Torch as well, is that because she has such a sensitive ear, she has this incredibly acute sense of how to draw you into the minute timbral qualities of an instrument. At the end of every piece she played during the organ set, she would actually just hold the last sort of chord for a full minute every time and as that chord droned on and on you began to hear all these like timbral fluctuations and these evolving frequency relationships just within that chord to where it sounded like you know the the same effect if you're listening to you know the changing filters and oscillations within like a piece of layered synth music synth music she's able to draw that quality out of like a pure acoustic setting which is so impressive and remarkable to me and in the talk she mentioned that that kind of sort of sonorous but also instrumental and emotional interiority is very very central to her compositional practice which you know aligns with what we were talking about with it i i really went in hard on serialism um in that episode just because you know i have a lot of baggage around the way that was taught to me and i I just want to make clear for everyone that like i think it's a totally valid musical practice uh it's you know a technique i use myself in my own music i make um you know it it, that's it's great but you know it, it just i was sort of attacking like the long-standing, you know, intellectual and philosophical impositions that have been placed upon that technique over, you know, the course of the last hundred years. And it was nice to have confirmation that, like, her her approach is very much an explicit rebuke to that. She mentioned in the talk that she's very set on this, like, non-prescriptive mode of emotional connection and interpretation to the music that it is very much this sort of invitational structure in which you know composer instrument instrumentalist listener are are all equal participants in this act of listening and this act of connection within the piece which i think is such a powerful notion that you, you you know you really sort of see as being the the central thrust of the way she composes and the way she arranges music um so uh another thing that came to light is that uh, you know when we were talking about the sort of early through lines of her discography something i had completely forgotten to mention is her first uh collected work tragic chorus in which she talks about the fact that she was um you know working in a lot of like procedural music and computer music and that you know, once she started working in a more electroacoustic realm, like Tragic Chorus is essentially just synthesized process music playing out over time with, you know, some guitar arrangements on top. Um, And that's happening primarily in the electronic domain. And the way uh, Cast of Mind and Sacrificial Code came out was essentially taking those, you know, process-based techniques and, you know, um, scoring live acoustic music that way. And so Living Torch really in that light does become this culmination of everything that she has been working towards where she's taking what she's learned about these really, really precise acoustic relationships uh, in working with the organ. And she even mentions the fact that, you know, she learned the organ as an instrument by tuning it. And so 
you know, the place that she is operating from with her relationship to that instrument is actually, you know, she said, like, literally physically being inside it and, like, having my ear right up next to the pipes. And that's something I want to be able to translate to the listener. And that's very much what Sacrificial Code is about. And she's kind of just coalescing all of that together on Living Torch, you know, these notions of process, these notions of, you know, these really like long form, abstractive, generative uh, canon structures and, you know, this uncanny quality that you're able to derive from recording uh, things from like an electroacoustic methodology to where, you know, you listen to Living Torch and it's that thing of like you really do feel like you are inside of the instruments inside of the arrangements that you are inhabiting something and that what that something is despite how deliberately laid out this piece is you know that's entirely up to you and, and that i think is you know that that mix that really just crystallizes in that piece i think is such a great sort of like thesis statement about what makes her special um you know, as a composer, as an arranger. Um, And, you know, the fact that she's taken these very, like, highfalutin, you know, academic in origin musical techniques and completely democratized and completely opened them up to, you know, this really wide-ranging and expansive mode of engagement and listening and emotional affect, Um, you know? That's uh, that's what makes her special and uh, getting to hear her pieces in person, you know, in a physical space in a church with an organ and then hear her talk about sort of what her musical philosophy is in a very explicit manner through this little like in conversation interview she did. Um, To me, it was sort of an affirmation of everything that we were, you know, straining a little bit to articulate over the course of the episode. And so I just wanted to uh, chime in long after the fact and, and share that with everyone in, you know, much more direct terms that, you know, I now have available to me thanks to what she has said about her own music. Um, Oh, sorry. I don't want this to go on too long, but a little addendum. Uh, I also wanted to go back to the Love Streams cover watch and just say a, a thing I completely neglected to acknowledge in terms of like the choice of super high saturated color on that album cover. Uh, Tim Hecker in a Red Bull Music Academy talk he does talks about like the lighting approach uh, to the Love Streams tour in which he was taking those colors you see on the album cover and, you know, was just picking one and essentially like completely washing a room out in fog and light that was connected to that hue and he said i wanted to simulate the psychological effect of a blackout but with like you know this really bright active hue and i think that notion of sort of sensory overload leading to you to this completely expansive space um is a really integral part of why that cover affects me in the way it does and i just thought that was important to acknowledge Okay, yeah, that's everything. Um, Sorry that went on for a little bit, but hopefully it was useful to uh, Alexis and Boo and all of you listeners. And uh, okay, back to the episode. Goodbye. Uh, So just in terms of like, I think it's, it's useful to just think about, like aesthetically we're in a, a realm of like, you know, we we talked about the aesthetic pointers that, like, make the thing what it is. Like, there are... 
there are realms around where people are... <laughs> Carl Malone. Um, there are realms around pl the place where people are doing, like, weird things on the fringes of electroacoustic, experimental, and electronic and ambient stuff that, like, push towards different kinds of aesthetics as, like, the way that they do their, their like, revision of the form. And, like, yes. the reason I love this album, I can't, it's an literally unpronounceable um, uh, the artist's name, but the it is More Ease and um, Seth Graham are the two artists behind it. Um, the record's called The Heart Pumps Kool-Aid. It's one of our favourite from last year. Um, and, like, the thing is, you get auto-tuned and affected and manipulated vocals alongside a lot of, like, you know, sparse neoclassical... Um, you know, like, it's an experimental electronic record. Like, go listen to it. Um, but just, like, the whole poles of aesthetic reference here are, like, explicitly, like, surreal, like, commentary on, like, middle America consumer culture. Like, there is something way more on the nose about this. And that I'm, like, confused and terrified about the world that we might live in if something like this started crossing over. Because... I see there are there are like places and touch points where they start to like the, this starts to make its presence felt like Maurice has like got a meaningful presence in like pop music criticism, and I'm waiting for the moment where like an art music tradition that looks like this starts or at least like has an interface on both sides because this feels like very much like this is a pop project which has the vernacular built out of neoclassical and modern classical stuff. Um, I'm waiting for the version of this that is interfaced with both pop and classical music, but is aesthetically not like so easily reincorporable. Like I'm waiting to see what yes. that looks like. I have no idea what it could be. It just like the Heart Pumps Kool-Aid is just like a reference point for a thing that like, if we lived in that world, it would be a very strange one indeed, but I think it, it, it's plausible to have imagined it in reference, in, in retrospect, sorry. But um, yeah, no idea what the answer is. No, me neither. But all of this stuff kind of like busts the door wide open on that for the first time in a long while. And like, yeah. it's, it's very exciting. Uh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Are we, are we about tapped out? Yeah, yeah, we're almost we're like closer to three hours than we're not. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in which case, Lily, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at comet double underscore body. I don't post anymore. Um, but when I do, or when I have something to share, I do post about it. So if you want to uh, see what I'm tapped into, um, those would be the places to do it. Uh, you know, listen to the Indie Heads podcast. Um, and also, uh, very crucially, this is the reason to follow me. Uh, I'm going to be, um, I'm writing on and going to be co-starring in a uh, original comedy series for the CBC uh, sometime next year called I Hate People, People Hate Me. Uh, we're going to shoot soon. Should be out early next year. Uh, it, it's going to be great. And if you uh, want to stay in the loop about where you can watch that, it'll be on CBC Gem in Canada. Hell yeah. Uh, but we will be on streamers elsewhere abroad. Uh, so yeah, follow me for uh, for updates on that as they come. And, you know, if I have any like writing or music or what have you, 
uh, to post. Those are the places I'll do it. So yeah, comma double underscore body on those two platforms. Uh, otherwise, do not try to find me at all. <laughs> <laughs> Real. Uh, Boo, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, anywhere you can put an at or a slash, type Buchanan after that, usually works. It's I, uh, I write music and put it up on SoundCloud and Bandcamp. Uh, and I do truly, truly insipid posts on Twitter. Insipid is hush. I, I think you're a magnificent poster. One of the goats. That's that's like being the that's, even as someone who doesn't engage. Uh, credit must. That's be given. that's like being the queen of Poop Mountain. You must realize you guys have given me this medal. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Boo, if you don't change all your bios to Queen of Poop Mountain immediately, I'm yeah. disowning you as a friend. <laughs> uh, if, you give, if you guys give me just a second here. While I'm doing that, Alexis, where the heck can people find you on the damn internet? You can find me on Twitter at Regression with three S's. Don't forget the third S. Um, that just about covers it because there's a, there's a card there where you can find all the other shit that I've been up to. Hey there listeners, it's Alexis here from the editing suite, here to tell you about next week's picks. We've got friend of the show, Patrick Totally, and we'll be bringing Hedgerer by Joni Mitchell, Lewis's L'Amour, and Interdimensional Music by Yassos. Looking forward to it then. All that's to say, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back soon. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody.